Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Daniel Ingram. Daniel is an emergency room physician outside Huntsville, Alabama, but that is not his primary claim to fame. Daniel is a very accomplished Buddhist practitioner and, to some extent, teacher. He's written a very interesting book, which we'll be talking about during this interview. And I'd like to start by just reading a fairly long bio that he wrote of himself towards the back of the book, sort of humorous, but has a lot of useful information in it, and it'll give you a sense of uh, his personality, which you'll get a better sense of as we do the interview. Daniel is an extroverted Gen X intellectual. He is known for his pronounced enthusiasm, lip-flapping, grandiosity, eccentricity, and calling people on their stuff and shadow sides regardless of whether or not this is helpful or even accurate. He is an arahat and has a solid mastery of the basic concentration states from the first jhana to nirodha samapati, we'll be defining terms like this, including pure land jhanas. He also has a solid knowledge of Buddhist theory and the texts, and because of these three areas of expertise, considers himself a qualified teacher. He was also authorized and encouraged to teach by a lineaged abbot of the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition. When it comes to insight practices, he has standards so high, exacting, and uncompromising that only those who are dedicated practitioners are likely to find them helpful. On the other hand, he is a firm believer that if people simply practice the basic techniques recommended by the Buddha, they can be very successful and awakened meditators. He is one of the rare teachers who will talk about insight directly and answer nearly any question about Dharma practice without using code, covering things up, without using code, covering things up, or watering things down. Daniel is a, di a diehard Mahasi Sayadaw fan, though he is very happy whenever he sees people trying to master any of the world's great mystical traditions and thus considers himself a pan-mystical evangelist. He is also a chronic map monger and technique freak because he has had them work very well for him. He does not claim to have any special knowledge of how to live skillfully in the conventional world, but has found that a positive attitude, non-pretentious kindness, and a sense of humor will take you a long way. If you imagine that you want to bust out of some hardcore practice, but are in fact just looking for a daddy, shrink, social worker, or someone to help you prop up your self-esteem, Daniel is unlikely at this stage in his development to be the best person to help you meet your needs. He considers himself to be one badass Dharma cowboy and prefers similar company, or at least those who aspire to be so. <laughs> so that's great, Daniel. Thanks for that introduction. <laughs> I'm sure it'll cue it up nicely for people. In as much as I am always never have enough time to read all the things I would like to read, as Jeremy said in Yellow Submarine, so little time, so much to know. Um, I didn't manage to read your whole book, but you had certain chapters starred with little lightning bolts signifying that they are likely to be controversial and push some people's buttons. So sure, I read those chapters, as much, almost all of them, but there's a lot you can fill us in on. And of course, we don't have to just talk about your book. Your book just provides a sort of a, a template or a map for things we might want to discuss. But I, I, I feel like you have a lot of value to say, and I hope we can take a nice and solid two hours at least and really thoroughly cover uh, everything you would like to say. And a lot of people watch these interviews, uh, you know, thousands. And many teachers whom I've interviewed have told me that it has been actually the most impactful in terms of people getting in touch with them or signing up for their such and such and all. So let's do it. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, what do you want to talk about? What would be fun? Well, for one thing, uh, you know, you said you're kind of a, really into maps. Yeah. I am in a way, too. 
just because I think there's a lot of vagueness and ambiguity in the spiritual world, Buddhist or non-Buddhist, whatever, Christian, anything, with regard to what this is all about, you know? I mean, we talk about enlightenment, awakening, you hear these terms, and I, I sort of feel like everybody has their own definition. You know, I mean, if, if medicine were practiced this way, there'd be a lot more people dying than there actually are. There, there's a lot of imprecision, and we're talking about something, I guess, that's very abstract and subtle, and it's sort of hard to put into words. You have to experience it yourself. And maps, of course, never really do justice to the territory. A map of Montana is nothing like visiting Montana. But I think maps are valuable because it's very easy for people to have all kinds of misconceptions about what enlightenment is, how, how close they are to it, whether or not they've attained it, and so on. So I think the more clear we can get on that as a culture, at least as a spiritual subculture, the more helpful it will be for people. Yeah, definitely. I think so, too. You, in your book... You have all sorts of models that you outline for stages of enlightenment or aspects of enlightenment, non-duality model, the sudden school versus the gradual school, you know, emotional models and all sorts of different things. So let's spend a little, since we've gotten onto this part, let's start talking about what awakening is, what enlightenment is, and um, you know, whether these models are like blind men feeling part of the elephant and, uh, you know, if we put them all together we might have the whole elephant, or what? What would, you, what would you like to say? So, at least in the book and in the way I think about this, I try to break this down into lots of different axes of development. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are so many different things you can develop both in terms of how you live your life and how you perceive your life. Um, and so, I think that the, most of the models that I have um, come across fall into some of the basic fallacies of like that if you automatically if you perceive this you will automatically know that or if you have understood this then you will automatically only be able to do certain things or if you you know um, have uh, you know directly uh, perceived some aspect of reality then you could only have certain emotions or you know that you could only think certain thoughts or that you could only uh, say certain things or you could only you know do certain things so there's lots of models that sort of fall into what I call the package fallacy, meaning that if you have this, you automatically get this other thing as part of a package. Let's get a specific um, example. So, I mean, the common ones are that, say, if you understand that the world is an interdependent, naturally occurring, intrinsically luminous place, that you could say, only say the sort of things that the person who's imagining the model would like to hear said, <laughs> for instance. <laughs> that being a common one or only do the sort of things uh, that the person imagining the model would like to see done, or only feel the sorts of things that the person imagining the model would like to imagine people would feel in so, their so, uh, so idealized words, world. Yeah. So, for instance, like if you have that sort of fundamental clarity that you just alluded to, you, 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 might, you wouldn't get angry, or you wouldn't cheat on your wife, or you wouldn't uh, X, Y, Z. You, you're saying that could we use perhaps behavioral quality or morality as a, a correlate of certain attainments, or could we not? Yeah, so that's one of the great questions. And, you know, the way I think about this is that it's very important to separate each of the various categories of, of life and the way we perceive life and our internal mental skills and our external skills and realize that developing one doesn't necessarily guarantee that that will automatically develop the others. You know, I know people who have really relatively profound degrees of insight 
whose morality I would say could, you know, in my idealized world, obviously, in my vision of morality, could use some revision. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, Chogyam Trungpa being one of these interesting examples of someone who, when I read, you know, his commentary on uh, the nature of mind and wisdom, I, I have no problems with it all. And when I look at his life, it didn't meet my particular ideals, not that they're necessarily anything other than my own arbitrary ideals from a certain point of view. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, you know, and that's, words, those he sorts probably of reactions wrote that are stuff common. while he was sober, you're saying. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> he might have been wasted when he wrote it. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? I think the common thing is that people assume that something about the essential nature of reality, seeing that, will alter the specifics in very specific ways that usually meet their specific ideals for how reality should be. And I think that it's important for practice to have models that are um, more embracing of reality uh, than that. Because I think what can happen is people have models of awakening and then they attempt to imitate those models. Mm -hmm. Not that lots of those imitations of the models don't lead to lots of good things, to better behavior, to better speech, to better ways of living in the world. They often do, actually, so that can be skillful to some degree. But the problem is, is that if people have models of awakening that, say, don't involve neurotic thought or don't involve um, sadness or don't involve crying or don't involve irritation, then when those things arise, it can be tricky for the practitioner who's working with that model not to try to repress, to ignore, to pretend they're not happening, to create shadow sides out of those aspects of reality that they consider unfortunate and may obviously in some way be unfortunate or unpleasant or not that nice. And I think that prevents a lot of people from really investigating those things, from coming to embrace those things, from seeing their true nature and noticing important aspects of those things and bringing them into their awareness rather than, say, repressing them or ignoring them or pretending they're not happening or those kinds of things. So that's why I think some of the models are important that sort of break into sort of separate boxes, sort of, you know, perceiving things as they are um, on the one hand and the models about the relative, which have all sorts of ideals for how our mind should be, how our emotion should be, how our behavior should be, um, all of which are good. And I think so working in both is obviously important, but recognizing that from what I call an insight practice point of view, being as, you know, I'm coming from a Theravadan map point of view, model point of view, from an insight point of view, being able to be with what's going on in all its complexity, in all its human richness, in all its glory and tragedy, in ordinariness is important for accepting this life and seeing it as it is. I'm sure you're aware of Ken Wilber's lines of development idea, right? Some. I know a lot more about the early Wilbur stuff, mm-hmm. having um, been influenced by his first book, Spectrum of Consciousness. Yeah. And I've read some of his later stuff a little bit, but I'm not as familiar with it. So what was on your mind? Well, as I understand it, you know, he speaks of their, all, the various facets and aspects of the personality, you know, behavioral things and emotional things and so on, uh, as being like various lines of development. And consciousness itself could be considered a line of development. And he posits, as I understand him, that these things are not as tightly correlated as we might sometimes assume, that you can get kind of be, get quite advanced along a particular line and be still quite stunted uh, in other lines. And Mm -hmm. um, this kind of runs contrary to something I was taught in my training as a meditation teacher and stuff, which was that there is a pretty tight correlation between the development of consciousness and, and all the other aspects of the personality that the analogy was used that if you water the root of a tree all the other leaves and branches and fruits and flowers will all flourish but 
that doesn't seem to pan out that well in actual life. So I yeah. kind of tend to go with Wilbur's idea more these days. Although I think there, it's, it's not a black and white situation. There is a correlation, but it's just more rubber bandy. You know, it's just looser. And, 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 but, yes. but things do eventually, you can't get too out of whack without something, some kind of break or without, without the, the stunted aspects eventually kind of getting shaken up and pulled along, don't you think? Um, yeah, so there are definitely correlations, but most of the maps are very sort of narrow and idealized and black and white about how they lay out those, those correlations, or they're just so vague as to be sort of useless. Like Zen is a remarkable tradition, but its maps are kind of useless. They're so vague and amorphous and nonspecific as to leave people just sort of filling in the gaps with their own projections as opposed to, say, you know, the Tibetans or Theravada, whose maps get so exacting that they're actually kind of naive in terms of, you know, that they assume it will happen in some very specific ways sometimes, which are also sort of naive. So you can run into problems both with maps that are too vague in that they really don't tell you anything useful about how these things may or may not correlate, or maps that are so specific that they always assume that if you have this, you all automatically have that, and if you do this, you all, you know, automatically, you know, um, have that, you know, and develop that. So anyway, so both sides um, of the map world run into trouble. So have any map makers that you're aware of come up with a more balanced middle road kind of a, a, a perspective? Or is that something you're actually trying to achieve? That's, that's one of the things I'm trying to achieve as one of the map revisionists yeah. who tries to look at as many of these maps as I can and try to figure out, you know, based on, you know, then, you know, personal experience as well as the experience of my Dharma friends and colleagues, what makes sense and what's helpful and what's sort of part right. And then the things that you can really sort of hang your hat on, that, you know, what are the few things that you can really go, okay, no, that's, that seems to hold up pretty well to reality testing and actual people and, you know, who are willing to talk about these things in a straightforward way. One line I picked up from your book um, on page 119, you said, it, it is what is common to the great mystical paths that makes them special. The differences are 100% guaranteed to be fundamentally irrelevant. And uh, I suppose that's a good thing to keep in mind when we're talking about maps. Um, it should be possible, theoretically, I think, to come up with a universal map into which you could place any mystical tradition, you know, just pick anything, and you say, okay, this is what they were saying here, and this is what they were saying there, and, and so on. But of course you have all kinds of complications in terms of language and culture and, you know, something that happened 2,000 years ago and got handed on for 200 years before anything was written down, and, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it all gets pretty murky. Yeah, that's true. And then you've got people who can experience the exact same thing and then describe it from totally different points of view. The, the no self versus true self debates being one of the great examples of that, where the field integrates, you know, yeah. and suddenly there's an unbounded field. And some people say, well, now the whole thing is me or true self or whatever. And some people would say, well, now none of it's me. But really what happened was the, the artificial boundaries dissolved and they tried to use language from the previous way of being and sort of take that and, and try to apply it to something that now it really doesn't quite apply to either way. And, you know, so that can cause a lot of confusion. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. There, there's, I call it the certs paradox, you know, certs is a candy mint, certs is a breath mint, and they're both right. <laughs> <laughs> if you, so. I don't know if you're old enough to remember those ads, but uh, it used to be when I was a kid, these, these twins were, were arguing about whether certs was a candy mint or a breath mint. 
and then the voice, the, the announcer came in and said, stop, you're both right, search is two mints in one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good case in point, this emptiness, fullness thing, or, you know, there's no self, and, you know, this is myself. I, I think they're both describing the same thing, as far as I can tell, uh, and it's just a matter of how you want to, where you want to put your emphasis, you know, or how you want to flavor it. Yeah, I think so. And then I think the other thing that it gets complicated is there are definitely relativistic effects to different techniques for getting there. And there are so many techniques for getting there. And each of them does wire the brain a little bit differently. Mm. You know, you are doing something that's different. You know, if you're, say, noticing every little sensation arise and vanish as fast as you can in your full field of sensate reality, like sort of a technical, you know, you know high-end Vipassana practitioner, that's going to feel very different from just opening up to the wondrous nature of the loving quality, you know, of the divine. Do you see what I mean? And so, you know, there are relativistic effects that are side effects of the techniques that people use to, you know, um, dissolve artificial boundaries and come to see the true nature of phenomena. And so that, those can also sort of skew the way people think about it, talk about it, and even feel it, you know, and they can, they can also cause a lot of relative effects, you know, that are very different. There is a different feel to people who have grown up in different traditions. They're sort of, you know, their whole, and, and it's because they trained their minds differently from a relative point of view. So there are some relative differences in these things. That's an interesting thing. Let's talk about mm -hmm. that a little bit. Um, you know, because as I understand it, enlightenment from whatever tradition you come from is supposed to be a state in which the reality as it ultimately is has been cognized or realized. You know, you kind of have gotten right down to the real nitty-gritty. You're apprehending or, or residing as the fundamental reality of the universe. But as you say, there are so many different ways of getting at it. And, and so all these different techniques and practices are going to wire the brain differently. They're going to have different effects on you. So if, yeah. if we take, let's say, hypothetically, get a room full of people who have, quote-unquote, attained enlightenment through a variety of practices, are they actually experiencing the same thing and just express it differently, such as you know members of an orchestra who are all playing the same symphony, but one is playing the piccolo and one is playing the tuba and you know one is playing the kettle drums, or have their different approaches actually wired their brains in such a way that each has a kind of a, a totally different flavor, not in terms of, not only in terms of their expression but in terms of their actual cognition, uh, a, a different uh, sense of the ultimate reality, which would imply that their cognition isn't really ultimate because it's been, been flavored by some individual conditioning. Well, I, I tend actually to uh, think that both, both of those aspects are true to some degree. So my working hypothesis is that if you got a bunch of very advanced uh, realized practitioners from a bunch of very different traditions together, they're going to have certain common shared aspects that if they can, you know, break of their little sort of um, terminological, you know, dogmatic fortresses and really just honestly talk about what they're experiencing at a very simple phenomenological level, they're going to find common ground. And they will also find some specific differences. There clearly are some different ways that you can be wired from, a, you know, what I'll think of as a relative point of view. But I do have this odd notion that there is something intrinsic and that intrinsic thing will be common. So when I read across what I think of as the better mystics and meditators and people, and I get to the, the good stuff, the part where they're really talking about the true nature of the thing, it all seems to 
be talking about the same thing from my point of view. And maybe that's a filter that I have as a cognitive filter. And I'm just reading it that way or, or extrapolating to my experience and assuming that I know what they're talking about. So I tend to fall both in the intrinsic camp and the constructionist camp, meaning that there's, there, you know, both are true, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sort of does. It's like, I, I can think of some examples in, in, the, in the Hindu tradition, in the Vedic tradition, it's considered that uh, although, well, maybe this gets into relative things, though. I mean, although, uh, you know, uh, you take a variety of rishis, they're all established in Brahman, they're all established in, in ultimate reality, experientially, but, but according to how they're wired, they'll have different cognitive abilities. Uh, you know, one will be able to cognize this aspect of the Veda and another cognize this aspect of the Veda. A friend of mine named Igor Kufayev wrote an interesting article in which he talked about how awakening could take on totally different qualities according to whether you had a predominantly sattvic, rajasic, or tamasic, you know, makeup. And, and then there could be other considerations of what makes up the nervous system in terms of Ayurveda or astrology or any number of other things. Yeah, definitely. Or, you know, just personality traits and and the tradition you came up in, and how you practiced. Mm. You know, I've, some of my um, more helpful teachers, uh, you know, actually one of my teachers, Sharda, you know, came up in, in Vedanta with Punjaji mm -hmm. of Lucknow. And, um, you know, when I would try to talk technical stuff, she didn't have any idea what I was talking about, but she gave great meditation advice because she was looking at something really important. So, you know, I'm sort of a technical guy, you know, I think about frequencies and beat patterns and, mm. you know, phases of attention and, and all these sort of, you know, uh, you know, and lots of stages and states and sub states and, you know, and she was just this big hearted person just looking at it, you know, going, okay, yeah, but, you know, and so, but I found that very helpful, you know, and, and, and so it, actually I found it, one of the interesting things, I found it very useful to train with people who looked at reality very differently from the way I did and whose um, strengths were actually totally different from my own um, because it helped to, you know, help me expand out and see other points of view and round out some things that I think if I just stuck with my way of seeing things wouldn't have uh, worked out as well. Yeah, that's nice. I kind of get that benefit from this interview show, although I don't actually train with people, but just having these different conversations is a nice way of cross-pollinating, you know? That must be amazing. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm sure it is. You should try it. Uh, <laughs> but well, sort of. So there's, you know, the Dharma Overground. Yeah, you do. You know, you and, have that. Yeah. And some of its sister sites. So you know, um, uh, well, you know, the the amount of diversity there sort of varies. You know, most of the people there have grown up in a number of traditions. There are very few people who are just strictly one tradition or only have one background. And um, it's been fascinating to have this online experiment of people comparing their experiences and trying to sort this out and help each other practice well and debate things and discuss things and yeah. share their journey and, and um, try to figure out what it all means. And, you know, so I, I do get some of that. Yeah, in fact, I, I think it'd be worth taking a minute to read some of the main points from the Dharma Overground, which is your website. It's, here's some of the main principles uh, and attitudes that you favor. Pragmatism over dogmatism. What works is key. With, work, with works generally meaning the stages of insight, the stages of enlightenment, uh, freedom from suffering in what ways are possible, etc. Diligent practice over blind faith. This place is about doing it and understanding for yourself rather than believing someone else and not testing those beliefs out. Openness regarding what the techniques may lead to and how these contrast or align with the traditional models. 
personal responsibility. You take responsibility for the choices you make and what you say and claim. A lack of taboos surrounding talking about attainments. The assumption that the various aspects of meditative development can be mastered in this life. The spirit of mutual supportive adventurers on the path rather than rigid student-teacher relationships. And finally, the notion that the collective wisdom of a group of strong practitioners at various stages and from various traditions and backgrounds is often better than following one guru type. So I, I like all that. It's a you know, nice mature kind of uh, package. We try. <laughs> I'm not sure the end product is always totally mature. My posts are always totally mature, but we do our best. Yeah. Well, online forums are always kind of wild. Yep. That's true. It's amazing the things people will uh, say in them that they would never say to a person if they were sitting there with them. I know. It's, like, it's anonymity. You know? <laughs> but but um, well, you mentioned this woman who was a Papaji disciple, and, and that brings up an interesting point regarding our whole discussion, which is that people from that lineage, as far as I know, Ramana Maharshi's lineage, would tend to find a lot of the things we've been talking about so far and we'll talk about today as being unnecessarily complex and detailed, all these levels and stages and attainments and yada yada. And there's this kind of feeling like, hey, it's just one simple reality. Don't, don't overcomplicate it, dude, you know? Um, right. And so I can see that and I appreciate that. On the other hand, you know, people do have a plethora of experiences, such a rich variety, and they go through all kinds of stages of development. And if you think that it's just one thing or the other, on or off, black or white, it's not going to pan out in people's experience. So people kind of need to understand what they're going through as they go through all these various stages. I mean, I've had people tell me uh, that, you know, they had some kind of insight and they feel that there's no distinction whatsoever experientially between them and Ramana Maharshi. And I would suggest that there are probably lifetimes of distinctions between them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, the, I mean, b both are true. So, I, again, you know, the, the maps can totally confuse people. It's very, very easy, as I myself have done um, thousands of times, to misdiagnose my own practice and later go, nope, I was totally full of it. I was just totally confused. Mm -hmm. um, I've done that more times than I can count, so I recognize that um, problem um, with the maps f full well, and nearly all of my colleagues have had the same things happen to them. Um, so the the potential for misdiagnosis is definitely huge and common. And actually, I think that's an important thing to recognize. So in in you know if you're going to be using a map, um, to recognize that you're going to totally misdiagnose yourself on a semi regular basis if you care about these things, and to realize that that's okay. So I think that the important thing is if, if anybody is using a map or a tradition or a specific set of goals or stages or, you know, levels, that you recognize that you're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. And that's part of the learning process. You know, when I started learning mathematics and I started, you know, multiplying numbers, I didn't always get the multiplication right. And but a lot of the time I did, but sometimes I didn't. And that's normal. And same thing with maps or whatever. And, and uh, you know, so I think people need to recognize that and realize that, that you just you know take your own diagnoses and everybody else's diagnoses with a grain of salt and and uh, you know give it some time. Very important. Uh, but also that if you have no maps, it is true that people without a context or the ability to normalize strange experiences or unusual experiences can really be freaked out by them, totally go off in strange tangents, um, have it really totally derail their practice become absolutely fascinated with things that are actually just stock standard, not that interesting things. 
you know, what we call the arising and passing away in Theravadan Buddhism, you know, which can involve, you know, bright lights and traveling out of body and explosions of consciousness and vortices and kundalini phenomena and profound shakings and, you know, bolts of energy blasting up and down your spine and chakra, you know, phenomena and all this stuff. That stage tends to like blow people's doors off and then is generally followed by something very dark, you know, the sort of the dark night stages, um, which can be extraordinarily disorienting. You know, to have gone from this wild spiritual high to all of a sudden your life's falling apart and your marriage and your career and your whatever and you're irritable and you don't know why. So if people don't have something to help go, okay, no, that's normal. That's fine. We, we, we all went through that multiple times. Everybody goes through that. That's just standard human development. You know, if you don't have that, people can really run into a lot of trouble. And it's amazing that just simply saying, oh, actually, no, that's normal. Here, read. This is just standard stuff. How that helps people. Um, an analogy I was using with my friend Willoughby Britton and I, I can't remember, I think we sort of co-came up with it, was that imagine if you had a young teenage female who all of a sudden started bleeding and had no idea that there was such a thing called menstrual periods. It's stressful enough as it is without thinking that you're suddenly dying. You know what I mean? Or going to bleed to death or, or something terrible. You know, and so contextualizing what I would consider stock stages of development you know, there's just normal human processes that people go through as their consciousness begins to wake up is really important to help people navigate in territory, just like, you know, it's important to figure out how to navigate in adolescence when all of a sudden you start having experiences that are not stock and standard, you know, that you grew up with in your earlier childhood. You know, same kind of thing. Very yeah. helpful to have it normalized. And you're a doctor so, and you've just used the word misdiagnose. And, and obviously, if, mm -hmm. and if you yourself, Daniel, had some kind of severe pain somewhere, you probably wouldn't diagnose yourself. You'd probably go in and have a colleague, you know, check it yeah. out for you, you know, because you can't be sure if you're just diagnosing yourself and maybe you don't that's have true. the right instrumentation or whatever. And mm -hmm. so I, I think that's a, an apt metaphor for the spiritual path where a lot of times you need a teacher, wouldn't you say? Someone who is more advanced than you are to help give you a sense of what you're actually going through because they've gone through it. Right, or a good set of friends who have gone through it. Yeah, um, but yeah, you, you, it, it helps tremendously to know the territory ahead and have people who have been there and made the standard mistakes like we all made and, and are continuing to make, and that, that helps a lot. And the collective wisdom, so not just the teacher, but also a tradition that has you know, the sort of summary collective wisdom of you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of practitioners over whatever period of time distilling down the essence of what they came across. You know, so modern medicine... You know, it's by, you know, taking care of zillions and zillions and zillions of patients and seeing, you know, the range and the of diseases and processes and, you know, the rare side effects and the common things and that breadth and depth of experience helps make it better. And I would add for diagnosis is a point of not diagnosing yourself, which can be tricky, but also friends and family members, close friends. It's very common to try to want to diagnose friends and family members. It's a notoriously dangerous business, particularly your closest Dharma colleagues, rivals, friendly competitors, you know, all these things happen particularly in the map-based traditions. Just be careful of trying to diagnose them, just like you wouldn't want to do psychotherapy on a family member if you were a psychotherapist. Same kind of thing for Dharma diagnosis. It's just notoriously dangerous, tricky thing to do. You know, I, I prefer that, you know, my wife go to doctors other than me. They should get somebody with a more objective point of view on whatever's going on. Sometimes I say on this show that the East has been at this for so many thousands of years that they've really worked it out in a lot of detail, uh, which the West hasn't, so similar mm -hmm. to the, the Inuit people who have so many names for snow, for instance, uh, yeah. you know, because they're so familiar with it. 
But you spent a lot of time in the East. Uh, you've gone and done Buddhist retreats and, and you know, over there. Mm-hmm. I sort of get the feeling that things are a mishmash over there, too. It, I, oh, yeah. I know it is within the Hindu traditions of India. There's so, such a variety of kinds of things. I guess perhaps one notion is that the, the pure essential teachings that were established by the Buddha or Lord Krishna or whoever were the original founders of Shankara or whoever have kind of, through the passage of time, gotten translated and muddled and reinterpreted and so on, sort of like that, that party game telephone, you know, where you whisper mm-hmm. something and it goes around the room and by the time it comes back to you, it's a completely different thing. So it would almost seem that the, the Eastern traditions need as much of a house cleaning as the newly forming Western spirituality from the East needs an education. Yes, it's totally true. And that brings up an interesting question of sort of, you know, the, the value of authentic traditions and techniques where people are always debating about what were the original teachings of the Buddha, which obviously is a very hard thing to get at with great certainty, as well, you know, as the question of what actually works and is useful. So I, as a pragmatist, first and foremost, rather than say a Buddhist or a traditionalist or a reformer or whatever, try to figure out at least as best I can from my experience and the experience of, you know, other meditator friends is what seems to make a difference, you know, because there are so many variants of uh, Buddhism, you know, it's, it, it's huge. I mean, it's absolutely gigantic and debates about the techniques and the meanings of words and all that stuff. And so many variants of the techniques. I mean, when you go into the Mahayana and the Tibetans, and then you look at the Zen people, and then if you go into Shingon Buddhism and Pure Land and and all these variants, or even within the Theravada, the, the differences between the various Burmese or Sri Lankan strains is, you know, it's just an amazing uh, plethora of a um, variety of teachings, styles, emphases. I, I think it's neat to see all of that and try to figure out what do each of those things lead to if you practice them well? What are their good side effects? What are their shadow sides that they necessarily create? Because I think basically anytime you have a technique and a focus, you're going to be doing some things well and other things you're going to you know, sort of almost intrinsically be not doing well. Mm-hmm. It's very tricky to have it all in one thing, if that makes sense. And so to try to figure out what those things are and just be honest about them. And so that people in various stages of their development can say, okay, actually, you know, that now seems to make sense. I need to do more of that to balance me out. Or actually, no, I need to stop doing this and do this other thing. Or actually, no, I need to now go back to something that I was doing earlier and really maybe need to, you know, look at that again, or Mm. you see what I mean? And so I think that, you know, just like with medications, each of these medications I give, I recognize the the useful things it does, and also the possible side effects that I can be caused by by giving that. I think all the aspects of the traditions are sort of like that too. And you give it dependent on context and dependent on the disease process, knowing the risks and benefits, and you go, okay, you know. There's a certain faction who's listening to this right now, who are kind of cringing if they haven't turned, tuned out already because of all this talk of practice, you know. And they're, I, I was just reading this morning in, in your book the, the sort of you're already there chapter, you know. There's a certain faction who feel like practices are bunk. They're only going to reinforce the notion of a practicer. Just realize that you're already that. You've already, you know, we're all already essentially enlightened. Really <laughs> realize that and you're, you're basically done. And you and I both agree that that's kind of crazy. And I think it's totally crazy. Yeah. I think it's, um, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, 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 I think that I have two theories as to why people say that. I think I have two. One is that we can all intuitively grasp that there's this deeper reality. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, mistake that intuitive 
aroma of, of that deeper reality for the full realization of it. They think that that's all these guys have been talking about is this sort of, a, you know, what they're now experiencing through their, and I used to do this when I was 18 on, on, on drugs. You know, I could, I could stand up and pontificate for hours about the nature of reality because I had this <laughs> sort of intuitive insight into it, you know. <laughs> and I think another thing is that um, people don't want to sit on their butts and practice for 20 or 30 years, you know. Why, why it's so much easier to just realize that you're there and, and not have to go through all this arduous practice. So those are my two theories. While it is true that the notion of practice does in some ways reinforce the notion of practitioner, there, there's no question about that. So I'll, I'll give them that point, that there is validity in that, but still like the sort of the candle flame that consumes itself, that consumes the candle or whatever, if the practice is a, a skillful practice or a helpful practice, it does help dissolve the boundaries anyway. So it does help dissolve the misperceptions, it does help to clarify. And when you have better resolving power and better clarity and better openness to experience and a better acceptance of the realm of sensate phenomena, and then that really does have the capacity to change things in a way that the you know less um, clear, less accepting, less precise, less open ways simply don't. So I think I would totally yeah. So we're sort of you know so we're on the same page there. But it is definitely true that the shadow side of goal-oriented practice or technique-oriented practice is definitely the sense of a, a division. So that's true that reality, you know, must be somewhere else, that there's somewhere in the future that I'm trying to get to that's somewhere where I am now. And that's a perennial problem for goal-based practitioners. And so that they make a valid point. So uh, I'll give them that. But it's but, true, isn't it? There is somewhere you're going to get to in the future. And you're not going to yeah. sort of in the snap of a finger realize the full-blown you know, enlightenment as clearly and fully as, as is possible, there's, not, there's no way that's going to happen. I mean, it would necessitate a radical change of the physiology, for one thing, a transformation of the way the brain functions. But yeah. in actual practical experience, it's very rare, if not entirely un unknown, for, for people to go from A to Z in the blink of an eye. Incredibly rare. So there, there do seem to be a few possible cases. There may have been a few, maybe. Maybe. There, there, you know, if you look at the history and the, the people things report, okay, maybe one in a hundred million. I don't know, it, but it's an incredibly small number, <laughs> you know. And so the chances of your chances are much better of being struck by lightning a few times than having this happening to you. So I would, you know, if, if I were going to bet, you know, were I a betting man, I would bet on the people to practice well <laughs> and really try to develop their capacity for clear thought and and heartful awareness and you know, clear comprehension of uh, what's going on, you know, so, you know, given a choice. But I think this reflects a lot of our culture. So I think some part of the reason that these are so popular is that each country has a shadow side and each country has some aspect of itself that it's trying to use spirituality to get, to get away from. Just as Burma, from a certain point of view, is such a mind-bogglingly um, dysfunctional, impoverished, political catastrophe with, you know, a barely functioning, barely industrialized, mostly almost medieval economy. In the same way, I find its techniques and its rigor and its precision of thought and mapping and everything to be some of the best in the entire world. And so their spirituality is an escape from the grinding poverty, political unsophistication, lack of education, and, and all those things that you find in, in Burma. Not that there aren't some remarkable things about that country, obviously. But that said, in the West, we have one of the most advanced 
technical, goal-oriented, hyper-achievement-driven, incredibly guilt-heavy, competitive cultures in the entire world. And so I think that attracts people to spirituality to get away from all that. They, they want something that, that gets them out of having to buy another SUV or another McMansion or get another degree or have another investment portfolio or whatever thing. So I think that, um, that part of the shadow side of our culture is a longing for something where we just don't have to do all that stuff. So I think it does attract people for that reason, which is unfortunate because doing all that stuff actually helps a lot. Yeah. You see what I mean? Well, you're, so in, a way you're kind sad. Of, in a way, you're kind of saying that with both cultures, people realize, well, this isn't really working, and I'd, I want to find something deeper and more meaningful. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I know that in your book, in various places, you talk about integration. And um, I'm, I'm one who believes that the material relative problems that confront the world, such as overpopulation or global warming or all these things, are actually very related to spirituality. Spirituality, in fact, can provide a f very fundamental s level of solution to, to things which have seemed insoluble or uh, intractable uh, through other means. Um, Explain. Help me understand that, because I'm more of a cynic, unfortunately, on that point of view. So help, help bring me over to your point of view. Sure. Well, the reason I feel that is that I, I feel that um, Everything we see on the surface of life, you know, economies and cultures and, and political systems and or you know dysfunctional political systems, such as both we have both in Burma and the U.S. in our own different ways, are all kind of uh, reflections of deeper trends or tendencies in the collective consciousness. Just just as perhaps the overall view of a forest is going to be um, influenced by the healthiness of each individual tree. And if most of the trees are gray and dying, you fly over in a helicopter, you see a gray forest, you know, susceptible to forest fire. Uh, but if each tree is sort of nourished from its roots uh, by, you know, kind of whatever miracle grow and <laughs> plenty of water, then the, the trees individually will become green and the whole forest will appear green. So, so uh, what I'm suggesting is that all the crazy stuff people do. Like take global warming, for instance. You can look at a lot of the cause of it being short-sightedness and greed. You know, now the ice is melting in the Arctic and the oil companies are thinking, oh boy, new places to explore for oil. <laughs> you know? yep. So it's stupidity, it's short-sightedness and greed. And so if short-sightedness and greed, which I'm sure are both dealt with in, in Buddhist psychology, are uh, dominating the collective psychology, the collective consciousness, how do you get rid of them? You can't just sort of paint the forest green, spray paint it, you know, fly over with a, a plane and spray, spray paint it green. You have to make each individual tree healthy. And so I, I would suggest that a spiritual renaissance will be the most fundamental possible solution to these macroscopic problems. Maybe. And so I guess it depends on what you mean by a spiritual renaissance and how broadly and deeply you imagine that being able to go in the collective population as well as in the population specifically of the people with the greatest power to alter those things. So a spiritual renaissance of CEOs and politicians and the wealthy elite of the banking system as well as the ordinary consumer. So while I dream similar things, and I would love for that to be true, unfortunately, I must admit I'm a bit of a cynic in that I see so many people that that would have to happen to to such a profound degree. And even then, I'm not sure it would accomplish the things you want it to accomplish. 
Let me chip away so, at your cynicism a little bit more if I can. Please. Um, I don't know about your life, but in my life, a reorientation to spiritual development made a huge difference in terms of not only my subjective fulfillment, but in terms of the outer oh, yeah. manifestations of my life, you know, my relative mm -hmm. success and happiness and, and interaction with people and being a more responsible person and you know, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, my, sure. My educational enthusiasm, everything. Yes, uh, made big, it helped me too. Made a big difference. And so if we multiply ourselves by some millions of times, uh, you know, and if, the, if, if as many, if, if millions of people were to become as engaged in spiritual development as we have, perhaps that would have an impact on the entire society. And I believe that's actually happening. Um, maybe, you know, to varying degrees, but it's, it seems to be w waking up more and more and more and more. And I would say that the corporate CEOs and politicians who seem to really have the reins in hand of, of the way society is going are actually pawns, ultimately, of the collective consciousness. And we've seen radical shifts in, in the world take place quite unexpectedly, such as the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, variety of other things and you know I can't prove that those were uh, symptomatic of a, a deep change in collective consciousness but I suspect they may have been and I think that um, you know this is kind of getting into sort of new age prognostication because there are a lot of people like Barbara Marks Hubbard and others who talk this way um, yes. whom I respect and, and actually will be interviewing in September I, I think that um, there is a groundswell there's a deep fundamental awakening taking place in the collective consciousness through the whether it's because more and more people are engaged in spiritual practice or whether more people are engaged in spiritual practice because there's some kind of awakening in global consciousness, I don't know which is the cart and which the horse, that seems to be happening. And I don't think it can possibly happen without there being profound ramifications on the more um, obvious levels of life. Yeah, maybe, except, okay, so here's a generational thing. So you got to remember, I'm Gen X. Okay. So my cynicism is, is different. So, and I've got to try to tease out How old what is a generation. I'm uh, 45. Okay, so I'm about 20 years older. Right. And so, and I feel that. And so when I, when I look at your generation and its optimism, I am at once jealous from a certain point of view. And also, I think it's naive. So I actually, you know, believe that empires can collapse that systems can fail, that um, calamity is possible, that um, yeah. we have not eliminated, eliminated the threats that could cause massive uh, regressions of society or technology or um, of uh, morality or anything. And so um, I actually wish I could share your optimism, but I don't see it as anything resembling guaranteed or cut and dried or even straightforward and actually see a lot of trends that actually I find incredibly concerning um, population increase, the increase in sort of low-level, nearly continuous wars of the United States, the rise of uh, robber baron capitalism basically nearly taking over the political process. I could go on and on, but I, I, and as well as the, just the continued unchecked nature of the population, uh, the potential for uh, diseases to, you know, and pandemics, you know, the continued instability of the global economy and the potential for things that, you know, we've sort of imagined we've gotten past, like nuclear war. It was only, what, a few months ago that the Russian foreign minister said, was mentioning turning us into nuclear ash or radioactive ash or something. And so we forget that there are still massive potentials for terrible things to happen. So call me a Gen X cynic or call me a realist or I'm not sure what. And, and not that I don't see a lot of potential. I see a lot of growth and a lot of great things happening, too. But, you know, it's a chaotic system. 
it's a strange system and there's a lot of potential for instability in both directions. You know, suddenly amazing things could be happening all over the world that are just fantastic or suddenly the whole thing can come crashing down and, and I would not be surprised by either. But a general, and I, and I may be misrepresenting you, but I have a sense that your generation has the sense that yes, there are downturns and there are whatevers, but it will sort of generally up, go up to positive, continuous progress, growth, expanding of human consciousness and the global peace and harmony that will you know, descend upon the wonderful nature of all things and will you know, become all ecological and all these things. But I'm not sure it's true. So even as I look at myself, yes, it empowered me to be my education, my ability to help people and my ability to help my family. Realization helps with a whole lot of things. It did, um, no question about it and made me vastly happier and solved a lot of problems, but it certainly didn't solve everything, nor did it make me less resource consumptive. So the fact that I was more successful in education, more successful in my career, meant that I can spend more money, can afford more plane flights, can have a bigger house that uses more power that, you know, and, and those things happened. And those are all bad for the environment. And, you know, so it made me a bigger consumer. So success is a dangerous thing. You know, I buy more products. I, you know, even though I, you know, drive Priuses and try to rationalize these things still, actually, I'm probably on average, I'm using more resources uh, than I would have been had I been less successful. And what's that doing to the planet? Probably messing it up. You see what I mean? Yeah. Sorry, that was a long rant, but. That's all right. And, and if you were a peasant in Burma, you'd be using fewer resources still. Right. Uh, even a, a Burmese monk. But, yes. um, and I agree with everything you just said. I mean, all this you know, scary stuff may pan out. You know, we all may go to hell in a handbasket. I mean, for all we know, an asteroid might crash into the planet next week and kill us all. You know? yep. uh, and there's, there's bad stuff happening, and it's hard to see how it's going to be reversed. I mean, there's an ice shelf melting in Antarctica now that's mm -hmm. pretty much irreversible, and it's melting, and it's, it's predicted to raise sea levels by four feet in the next hundred years, which yep. will inundate hundreds of millions of, of population in coastal cities. But all I'm saying is that the subtle is more powerful and the, the spiritual realms that we're talking about experiencing are more subtle. And that if larger numbers of people are experiencing these and enlivening them, it's somehow going to percolate up. And again, maybe I'm sounding idealistic, but it's somehow going to percolate up in terms of different expressions in, in society and technology and so on than the sort of lower consciousness that has predominated have given rise to. For, I surely hope so. Yeah, there's all kinds of cool ideas that could come about. For instance, I just read something recently where these guys are working on this project to actually pave our entire road system with solar panels. I just saw that too. Isn't that cool? Yeah, unbelievable. And all the parking <laughs> totally lots. Awesome. I mean, it's like 18,000 square miles just of roads, plus you have parking lots. And, and what, mm -hmm. could, what that could result to in or what other technologies there might be that would, you know, overnight practically uh, change, well, it's going to take a while to implement them, but, but change our whole use of energy and there, and there might be ways of... Uh, anyway, I'm just saying that I, just, I watched an interview with Steve Jobs uh, the other night, which was taped about 19 years ago, and it was, bef it, was, it was taped during a time when he had been kicked out of Apple, and Apple was like 90 days, on the verge of bankruptcy. And, and then he ended up coming back and it became the biggest company in America and did all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, I'm just saying that, that there are all kinds of amazing technologies that are possible and we never know what's going to manifest. And I think that ultimately it's human creativity that will give rise to these technologies if they, if they do come about. And spiritual development is a tremendous um, fuel for creativity and hopefully 
creativity channeled in the right direction, you know, because, I mean, it took a lot of creativity to create an atomic bomb. But if all the, the morality and so on that Buddhism and other spiritual practices are supposed to cultivate were to be cultivated on a, a much more mass scale, perhaps we would have a, a technological proliferation that would really be uh, in, in our ultimate best interest and not destructive. Well, so I'm a fan of an a author named Jack Vance, who's a sci-fi fantasy writer. Uh -huh. And in a, a remarkable series by him called The Demon Princes, which I highly recommend if anybody likes science fiction, I think he's just great. He talks about um, a group whose dedicated goal is to keep technology below a level at which a single madman or small group of crazy people could cause mass destruction. And then the problem is, the more advanced the technology, the more, uh, the greater the capabilities of any individual. And so then you either have to figure out a way to make everybody sane, kind, thoughtful, reasonable, or maybe you shouldn't have that level of technology. And so the, the goal of this organization is to limit technology to a certain level, you know, so that a single madman can't say destroy a planet. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, as we get better and better at technology, you know, they just published the sequence for, um, you know, an influenza virus with a 60% kill rate and a higher rate of transmissibility. Mm -hmm. Somebody could get hold uh, of that. Yeah, and those things are becoming easily within our capabilities or to resurrect smallpox or to uh, engineer something even more sinister and destructive. And, you know, soon enough, the stuff will be available to relatively ordinary people on relatively ordinary, um, you know, bench tops. And to some of it is actually already. Yeah. Um, and there's you know, loose nukes and, out there, you know. Right. So, you know, so uh, I am simultaneously so excited about some of the potentials for technology and not to be a needless Luddite or pessimist, but some of it also really scares me yeah. um, in terms of its capability to cause real trouble. Well, this kind of, I think this supports the point I've been arguing, which is I think the cat's out of the bag in terms of technology and it's, not, yes. it's, it's unstoppable and it's going to continue to multiply and become more and more sophisticated and powerful. So I don't think we're going to rein it in, uh, unlike that, what that science fiction writer was saying. So we have to counterbalance it. You know? We have to kind of raise human intelligence and morality to a level at which technology is going to be more responsibly managed, wouldn't you say? So, but then the question is, you know, so I work in an emergency department. A very large portion of what we do is related to mental health, one way or the other. People self-medicating on tobacco or alcohol or by overeating yeah, or, or you know, or shooting each other or whatever. So that, you know, or just, you know, the standard mental health disorders, bipolar and schizophrenia and, you know, the cluster B personality disorders, the narcissists, the antisocial borderlines, those sorts of things. And so the realm of mental health is very complicated because it constantly begs the question of individual freedom versus the obligation of society to help people. And the, the question of, uh, where do we draw the line in terms of some people will say, no, you're going to take this or no, you're going to behave in certain ways or no, you're, you know, you're going to live in a certain place or not be allowed to go certain places or not allowed to do certain things, you know, when we institutionalize people or when we commit people. And so those questions of human rights and human dignity and caring for people and making sure that people are safe and not hurting themselves or each other, those are some very gray areas of territory. And so unless you can figure out a way to solve the problem of mental illness and its treatment and figure out 
how to get an extremely high degree of mental health across the population and monitor that population without being draconian about it. I don't think it's going to be easily possible to eliminate all the, the people with a remarkable capacity to um, cause serious destruction as suicide bombers and you know, uh, mass shooters um, continue to demonstrate on a nearly daily basis. Yeah. Um, do you see what I mean? I do. Um, so, well, you know, if you want to change the course of a river, um, it's too late if you try to do it at the mouth of the river. The river's already run its course and it's got a lot of force. If you go halfway upstream, you may be able to change half of its course and, and it's, it's a little easier than it would have been at the mouth. But if you get up to the source of the river, you know, very hypothetically speaking, you could probably send the whole river off in a different direction you know, given mm. an imaginary ability to change geography. So what would you propose? So, mandatory so meditation I, in grade school? Maybe. Or? Uh, you know, why not? We have mandatory mathematics and ma mandatory uh, learning to read. It's actually not mandatory, but it's actually happening a lot in schools around the U.S. There, there, where meditation is being taught in schools and over the, sometimes over the objections of fundamentalist Christians, but it happens nonetheless because the, the, the supervisors see such profound benefits that they, they manage to keep it going. Uh, and I know sometimes it gets shut down, but we can imagine a society that was a little bit less fundamentalistic, uh, if that's a word, and, and a little bit kind of more evolved in which some form of meditation or other, or perhaps a variety of forms, were more or less universal curricula. You know, and imagine the impact that might have on, on the entire society. Oh, oh, so definitely. Um, and I imagine it both ways. So if you could either, I guess the two options are either to totally secularize attention training and just simply say this is attentional uh, fitness, as my friend Kenneth Folk calls it, or attention training, just like we train to learn to count or we train to learn to spell or to speak or to you know use a map or whatever things they teach us in school just so you're training attention mm -hmm. to be stable to be clear to be precise to be workable to be handleable and training your emotional world to be psychologically healthy and balanced and kind and and skillful and and all these things and generous etc so you either have to totally secularize it which the problem is most of the traditions like owning their technology and their concepts. So, it, you know, and there are plenty of obviously people who are trying to totally secularize this stuff, which sort of often decontextualizes it and takes out a lot of its power, which is sort of ironic. But anyway, or you have to then integrate these things into the religious traditions because it's not like people's religious views are going to suddenly go away. You know, America is a profoundly religious country. There's a church on nearly every corner here where I live in Alabama. And not that they all get along with each other, but, you know, they're on, so, um, so the question is, could you integrate meditation technology back into each of the religious traditions? But I actually think that part of the problem is, is that there's a developmental thing with people. So people are on a developmental bell curve with regard to seeing the value of mind training, seeing the value of meditation, even being able to do it. You know, I see people who are adults who can barely handle their minds. They can barely handle their emotions. They can barely handle circumstances. And, and I see kids who have unbelievable levels of maturity and, and uh, self-insight and ability to, to handle themselves in the face of stress and their internal experience and to articulate it. I see, you know, I see nine-year-olds who have a a level of descriptive ability of their internal states and ability to be mature and poised that I see plenty of 40-year-olds not having even my 
some of my fellow colleagues and physicians who may be incredibly smart, capable people, but never really learned to be emotionally balanced or polite or to handle their own internal emotions and experiences in a mature way. Mm -hmm. And so then the problem is, how do you deal with that bell curve of what seems to be a mix of intrinsic talent and ability, as well as conditioning, and do that on a broad scale and get everybody up to a level that's reasonable so people won't be intimidated by it or all these things. So I think it's, I see, a, I mean, it's a wonderful dream. I love the vision. I love, I mean, I have similar, you know, obviously, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if everybody's learned to meditate and we'd all be great and kind and wonderful, except that I see so many practical barriers to it from an on-the-ground point of view. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, but bell curves move. I mean, if you took the upper fringes of the bell curve of the Middle Ages, you'd probably find that that was about where the middle of the bell curve is now, you know. And it seems to me that the pace of change is accelerating, so it might not take us another 500 years to, <laughs> to see really dramatic, profound change. And I know... Got to hope that. I, yeah, really. <laughs> we don't have 500 years. Um, and I, I know, I know. New, you know, there have been tens of thousands of kids instructed in meditation in U.S. schools and hundreds of thousands in other schools around the world, which perhaps have a little bit less uh, opposition. But still, that's the tip of the iceberg. But I think it could really pro proliferate. And, um, and obviously, there would have to perhaps be different sorts of training for different people. And, and all kinds of different things could be experimented with and tried. Um, and as you say, you know, some, in some cases, it could be stripped of its sort of you know, religious connotations. Or in other cases, you know, perhaps that, there could be just a dose of that. I don't know. But the details would have to be worked out. But I think it's already happening. And it's, it's a matter of it just happening more. Have you ever read any Sam Harris's books? A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an interesting so he's, guy. He's funny. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's a dedicated <laughs> practitioner of Buddhist meditation. Has been for since his teenage years, and and uh, you know, obviously a very staunch critic of religion. But one one point which he makes it, which I think is really good, is that we've gotten ourselves into a lot of trouble by believing things that we can't possibly know experientially. And he advocates a scientific approach to to anything. And, and, you know, there's been, you know, these guys that fly planes in the buildings because they think that they're doing God's work and are going to get 72 virgins in heaven. They're, they're taking a really radical action based upon something they can't possibly really know. It just says it in some book. So, so I think that this whole discussion about, you know, changing the culture through meditation has to have a scientific, given the nature of the age we live in, has, has to be approached scientifically if it's really going to work. And, uh, you know, things have to be testable and measured and so on. And I don't think that would necessarily compromise or, or water down what we're talking about. Yeah, all, all valid points. So I would add in a augmenting semi-counterpoint that the other problem with the stages of meditation is they can sometimes be destabilizing. Yes. You know, which is not yes. talked about a lot. Yes. And so then the question is, can we put in place a broad enough and sophisticated enough system of psychology or social support or, um, you know, MD training or even just get this into standard developmental curricula of, um, you know, junior high schools and health class that there are these stages of meditation that they can look like this, that they, you know, sometimes can cause, you know, real instability. So, you know, I've had some, uh, you know, it is not that infrequent that I get phone calls or Skype calls or emails from people who I think of as pretty strong practitioners who all of a sudden are now totally suicidal. And these are hyperfunctional people, you know. I remember getting a call from a person with a doctoral degree, you know, somewhere in what I would think of as the middle stages of awakening, who's always like, 
you know, Dan, I'm totally suicidal. I just had this big, crazy, you know, opening experience. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm just thinking about killing myself. And I'm like, yeah, don't do that. You know, and luckily two or three days later, he killed me. He said, no, I'm good. It's just a temporary meditation side effect. I'm okay. Yeah. But it doesn't always go that well. So I don't know if you're, you should interview Willoughby Britton um, about these things if you're interested in interviewing interesting people. I would. And she also is actually getting an NIH grants to study meditation and its various side effects and some of the dark sides of meditation, which is kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. So it's getting that we're getting NIH money now to study these things is important. But I think we have to be careful if we're going to implement sort of mass meditation programs to recognize that that's going to do a lot of good, I think. You know, people learning to calm down, to be clear, to be, you know, stable, to be, to understand what's going on in their hearts and minds and bodies is really valuable. And also to recognize that sometimes this stuff can cause some wild temporary instability mm -hmm. and sometimes even psychosis and, and real trouble. You know, I've had a number of meditator friends who have really flipped out, who are good, sane people and just yeah, so for a little I. while, their operating system yep. in that sort of, you know, as it was rebooting to some other configuration, didn't function so well. You see what I mean? And, you know, most of them later on got through it and were better for it and for the experiences they had. But that short-term stabilization part, we have to recognize we are going to cause some trouble. Yep. No, I, I totally understand and agree with that and have experienced it myself, both in yep. friends and in myself. I mean, I, ne yep. I never got suicidal, but I've certainly gone right. through some nutty phases. Yeah. You know, really goofy. It's <laughs> still a little goofy. But um, so that would have to be part of the package. You know, yes. it would have to be understood that, okay, you, you, you've got a lot of crap bottled up and now we're going to start yeah. releasing it in stages. And as it releases, some of it may have to be dealt with. You, know, you may have to have massage. <laughs> you may have to have, you know, more physical activity. You may have to, yeah. you know, do some yoga. You may even have to take some kind of drug. Uh, yeah. And so all that, a really mature, complete package would take that into account and, you know, have that as part of the plan. I like your thinking. Yeah. Yep, I totally agree. Yeah. It's a great vision. I, I hope to be some teeny part of helping to make something like that happen. I think you are. And I don't think it's going to be one size fits all. I think everybody right. should have a chance at it. I think that, you know, the kind of things you practice, um, transcendental meditation, which is done a lot with schools, uh, mindfulness, mm -hmm. all, all sorts of things, it should all be tried. And it is being tried. You know, I mean, there's that doing time, doing Vipassana movie where they're, they're teaching meditation in a prison. And, and a lot of that has been done with Buddhists and other types of practices. So I think all this stuff has the... It's like we've got a genie, or maybe we got, maybe Pandora's box would be a better analogy. We've we've got a lot of stuff bottled up in our individual and collective psyche, and it come it comes out explosively, you know, in mass shootings, yeah. in, in mass shootings, and that kind of things uh, occasionally, and uh, every day on the news or something, and it also trickles out continuously, like a like pus oozing from a wound, you know, and creates all kinds of undesirable influences in society on an ongoing basis. We've got to purge all this stuff, but it's going to have to, and we'll have a much better world when we have purged it, but the purging process has to be treated carefully. You also have to remember that the purging process is continuous, so people are yeah. being born all the time, and each yeah. new generation has to figure out something that resonates with them and works for them, and the, the way they were, the conditions they're coming up in, and where they find themselves, and and it has to be done with each new person coming along. So part of the thing we can subtly imagine is we'll sort it out and it'll be sorted out, you know, except that it's an ongoing thing with each new phase and each new generation, and each new challenge and each new set of political circumstances and 
And it um, is, but I would like to think uh, that more enlightened parents will give birth to more enlightened kids. You know, they'll 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 be a continual upgrade. You know, the, Jesus said the sons of the fathers are visited. What was it? Sins of the fathers are visited upon the sons, or some such thing. So I think we it doesn't have to be we're all kind of born Neanderthals each generation. <laughs> we have to, but there's a there can be a kind of a progressive evolution, and I see that. I mean, I see some it's, again in a very unscientific way of observing, but there seem to be some really enlightened kids being born these days. Who are kind of coming right out of the starting gate? Pretty, pretty remarkable. I remember um, Christopher Titmus, one of my uh, favorite teachers, mm -hmm. um, who's um, was talking about his daughter um, and uh, how she's like, "Yeah, you do your thing, Dad. I'm going to do mine." You know, like yeah. not, 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 you know, at least at that time, didn't seem to be particularly interested in these things. And he, I remember him telling the story of. Um, when she went out for her 18th birthday, which I believe in England at the time the, the drinking age was 18 or something like that. I can't remember if it got the age quite right. It's been you know, 15 years since I heard the story. But he was talking about you know, how he did not like the look of her when she came staggering back in at some early hour of the morning. And so I think just because parents may have some understanding doesn't necessarily mean their kids will be interested in that or go in that direction or resonate with that. You know, my stepchildren have no interest in anything I do in the stuff at all. Having a conversation with them, I might as well be talking about, you know, aliens and spaceships or, you know, fractal geometry. They, they have no interest. Yeah, uh, but I'm so, talking you know, about so. sort of the big picture. I mean, there, there are exceptions to every generality, and, and obviously it's not necessarily going to happen every time that, you know, but, you know, presumably... Uh, I mean, my parents were a mess. My father was heavy PTSD from World War II, epileptic, alcoholic, you know, mixing alcohol and phenobarbital liberally. And my mother was in, in and out of mental hospitals and trying to commit suicide. And, you know, yeah. that took a toll, toll on me for a while. But then when it was almost like you're, you were saying about Burma, where it's such a mess that people, you know, when they get into spirituality, they go deep because there's nothing on the surface to attract them. When I finally kind of like, realized, you know, began meditating and all, I took off like a shot because it was so much better than what I had been experiencing. <laughs> uh, right. So, I don't know, it can work both ways. But I, I think that the general trend of society as a whole, the big macroscopic picture, uh, we can expect that there, there are macro trends, you know. Yeah, there's no question that as a macro trend, meditation is getting all over the place. It's all over the news. It's on mainstream media. Yep. You know, Dan Harris, my friend, his new book, 10% Happier, is, yeah. you know, making the rounds all about, you know, meditation. And, and you know, you see it in mainstream magazines and on mainstream TV and, mm -hmm. and in popular culture. So yeah. there's no question. Compare you're that you're to right. It is 50 years ago, you know? Right. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, compare it to say, well, now, now you have to, no, actually, you have to go back because 50 years ago, remember, was the 60s. So yeah. compare it to say 60 years ago, sure, you have, had, you've got to go back, or back, 70. Back in you know, the 50s, we had maybe, years maybe Yogananda, now, so. and that was about it, right. you know? Yeah, or 70 years ago, say, or 80 years ago, right. You compare it to say World War II or, mm -hmm. you know, the 50s, yes, so no question. So times they are changing. Yes, no question. And so there's, there's definitely that trend. And yet, all of a sudden, we're seeing instability in Eastern Europe again. You know, we thought we, Eastern Europe was just going to keep getting better. And the Middle East is way more of a disaster than it was in, say, the 50s. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Or even the 60s or 70s, you know, the, so in some ways. Do you see? Uh, well, well, you know what you were saying you about know, people, the, uh, you know, going through. Things a going up, things going down. I know. But you know what you're saying about people, um, like kids in schools, if they learn to meditate, be, that there would be a lot of destabilization, possibly, as they went through various stages. 
because there's there's a lot of structures that are keeping your shit in place, you know. But when those yeah. structures start to loosen, then things start to kind of come out, and you can get kind of nutty. I think we're going to see that with the entire world. Uh, there, there, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of stuff that ultimately doesn't deserve to exist if we can imagine what an ideal world might look like, and that stuff is going to. Uh, there's a lot of structures that are going to crumble as global awakening takes place. Right. Okay. And so then, counterpoint, you know, a lot of the trouble happens because of the cluster B personality disorders, as well as just basic depression, mm -hmm. as well as physical stress. So people get very cranky when they get hungry. You know, Katrina um, was a clear demonstration. You know, uh, where are you living now? Iowa. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't see it in quite the same way, but Katrina is pretty close to, you know, um, my back door. And it was a very clear demonstration. I know a lot of people who were there in the city at the time and who scattered from the city after it happened and, and the, the general area. But it clearly demonstrated that we're just, you know, a few hours away from totally savage behavior, uh -huh. you know, and roving gangs and, you know, roaming the streets trying to find food or survive or total craziness, anarchy and chaos. And so we forget that, you know, it just takes a quick change in you know, all of a sudden, if the, the, there weren't food in the stores within two or three days, poof, you know, it, it's going to be a madhouse, mm -hmm. you know. And so, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, we forget. So yeah. just wanted to make that point. And so. what would you consider to be the best, the best way of preparing for that scenario aside from stocking up food? Well, actually, having a basic supply of food and water is not a crazy plan. Not a bad idea. But not a bad idea. I think having that's, a basic supply of sanity is even more fundamental. And that's what you're talking yes. about here. This whole yes, and, and a basic supply of sanity helps tremendously in a basic set of coping skills where you can handle stress, absolutely, yeah. and a basic sense of kindness and generosity mm -hmm. and the ability to cooperate. But then there's the other thing where I see where then what do you do about, say, the psychopaths, the people who lack intrinsic morality, the people whose you know, worldview is that they feel totally comfortable killing you so they can feed their children or whatever it is. You see what I mean? And so... And so a lot of the, the governments, the, the crazy people who get into power, they're, you know, the people who really like power and money. Well, they got into these positions of controlling everything because they like power and money. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? If that's their fundamental goal. But the problem is then you see the people who were obsessed with power and money ending up in the positions with power and money because mm -hmm. that's what they cared about. That's what they dedicated their energies to. And so then you, you run into this funny thing where the people who are willing to commit violence, the people who are willing to take over nations, the people who are willing to buy, own, and run and control corporations, those are the people with the power and the money and the guns and the, and the influence and the, you know, the presidencies or the prime ministerships or the whatevers they are. And so the question is, how do those who consider themselves to be the kind, enlightened, gentle, wonderful people then do something with that? Because part of the problem of the shadow side of spirituality is that it's historically been unwilling to engage with those forces that can be truly dangerous and destructive in a way that truly actually mitigates those forces. So witness, say, Burma, a place with you know, miserable <laughs> dictatorship uh, they're not calling themselves the Slork anymore, but you know what I mean? Whatever their name is, you know, they're getting a little bit better maybe, sort of. And yet an entire monastic culture, a very kind, thoughtful, skilled, awakened, you know, not all of them are awakened, but a lot of very skilled, awakened people who just say, yeah, okay, that's the, that's the kings, that's the yeah. rulers, that's the people, and we're the monastics, that's not our 
That's not our job. Well, look you what happened what in Tibet, you know, when the Chinese came in and, and right. all the monks, yeah. monks were slaughtered and people were raped and just all kinds of horrible stuff. So how not do, that how bad you, things didn't happen in Tibet before that under the monks ruling. There you go. So, so maybe then we have to remember the monastic rulers. It was a feudal system and there were aspects of that system that were pretty frightening and scary and really totally unfortunate. So, you know, Mao's critique not that the Chinese takeover of Tibet wasn't a totally unmitigated travesty from a lot of points of view, but Mao's critique was also not 100% inaccurate. His analysis of the way that the ruling cultures in Tibet sometimes handled things, a, a lot of what he said was inaccurate, but some of his critique of some of the problems that happened there was not. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't want to say. It's not mm -hmm. like I don't feel for the Tibetan people and right. benefit from, tremendously from Tibetan Buddhism, but there were some real problems under that system. Yeah, and I mean, we're getting pretty far afield here, and, and I, I'm not a historian, I don't know about you, but I mean, there are so many examples of indigenous cultures being overwhelmed by, you know, the Native Americans in, in the U.S. and various cultures in Africa and so on, and whether, whether there's some kind of karmic implication in all that, and I don't know, we, we could go on and on, and, and I, th I at least would be just speculating, but social change happens and um, you know whether we should all stockpile food and arm ourselves to the teeth in order to prepare for it or whether uh, spirituality is the best preparation or some combination of both I'm just going for the spirituality aspect don't own a gun um, and, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying though yeah, I, I mean it's, it's, a, it's a sticky wicket and, and it's hard to give glib answers yeah, yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> Let's, let's steer ourselves back to your book because I, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff in here that would be really interesting to talk about and um, I think what we've been talking about is interesting, but I want to make sure that we feel we've done justice to the, you know, what, the thing that is your, your primary interest. Help me pick up a thread based upon you know, what you know of your book since you've obviously read the whole thing <laughs> and, uh, you know, what, and not only your book but anything else that's in your kind of worldview that you feel like would be really interesting to talk about that you, you don't want to miss the opportunity. Well, I actually think that all of these things have actually been playing right to the themes I care the most about. Oh, good. So the notion that if we simply become good meditators that we'll sort out all our problems uh -huh. or that if we understand the true nature of reality then suddenly the world will be perfect mm -hmm. or that we will be perfect or that suddenly society will be so necessarily much better or that yeah. everything will go to some wonderful place or that our emotions will necessarily be perfected or have worked out all our psychological issues. I actually don't see any obvious examples of that being true. Mm -hmm. And I see hundreds of examples of that being totally false. Yeah. And so I think that on the one hand, you've got to figure out how do you advertise spirituality from a sort of an American cynical marketing point of view such that people do these things, which I think in general, I think people should learn to be clear about what's going on inside and relate to it skillfully. They should, you know, learn to more automatically perceive their thoughts and emotions as they arise, you know, as part of a broader field of, of clear experience that helps, you know, not be so contracted into those things. I think they should generally engage in some sort of meditative training. I am a believer in these things. Mm -hmm. And yet, I also think that, you know, to do that there, you've got to figure out how to sell them in a way that motivates people to do that. And most people respond to advertising triggers that turn out to be sort of semi-inaccurate. So, so most of the great ways to advertise spirituality and that people engage in these practices do verge into territory of, you know, hyperbole and exaggeration mm. and whitewashing. Ideal behavior, things. perfect health Ideal, and all that stuff. Right. And 
all these things. So, so most of the advertising that really grabs people to do things I think are incredibly valuable do actually create problems and missell these things and create ideals that then also create divisions within people's lives where they have this idea of perfection and then that prevents them from investigating aspects of their lives that are imperfect, which is going to be basically all of it. Mm. You see what I mean? And so, so I think that that's a real important question because we've talked about how do you advertise this stuff? Will it lead to a global evolution in consciousness? Will it lead to more moral behavior? Will it lead to more clarity and, and balance for our planet, balance for ourselves? Well, I think in some ways some of those things are true, but then the reasonable qualifiers that don't create shadow sides are, are a question of how do you do that skillfully? I think it's not, e not always easy. Yeah. Yeah, personally, I think that a more honest uh, approach to the whole thing would... I, mean, I taught Transcendental Meditation for 25 years, and we had, oh, fun. We had a very sugar-coated uh, presentation on, on yeah. what, what you could expect, you know, your, your full mental potential, um, <laughs> ideal health, ideal social behavior, world peace, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, when you really get down in the trenches and start doing a lot of meditation, the kind of things you and I have been talking about begin to happen. There's, you know, all kinds of stuff begins to come up. There can be, yeah. there's really good stuff happens, but there can also be destabilization. Uh, we used to call it unstressing. <laughs> and uh, What a nice term. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, the theory being that a lot of stress is bottled up and now it's being released and you've got to sort of suffer through it and just grin and bear it and keep on keeping on and, you'll, and eventually the sun will come through the clouds. Um, and, you know, people ran into some pretty serious things and, you know, there, yeah. there were casualties. And uh, yes. so I think perhaps a, a more honest presentation, um, not only in this particular thing, but in any spiritual tradition is good to get from the outset. You know, the initial message should be, okay, here's the deal. It's not, it's not a, a walk in the park, but it's going to be great. Get into it. But, you know, the, these precautions and, and so on. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like the dark days of paternalistic medicine, we didn't, where we didn't have warnings on the bottles that explained what these things could do and stuff to watch for, yeah. you know, and what to do if it happens, you know. Um, now it's 90% of the commercial, you know. Right. Is, is yeah. you know, saying, Ask hey, your by doctor the way, about Ambien. Now here's what it's going to do to you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely true. And so I, I think that, you know, more of that needs to come into the world of meditation, yeah. you know, where frank disclosure um, recognizing that most people can understand those pieces of paper, even in, in the bottles. Right. You know, most people are never going to read them. They can't understand them, even if they do read them. And, um, you know, and they don't know how to process that and put it in context. So, you know, I have people saying, well, doctor, you wanted to give me Tylenol, and I just looked up the side effects of Tylenol, and it's all these terrible things. Yeah, well, liver or whatever. Right. I mean, except that we give Tylenol all the time, and most people do fine, you know, so it's, you know, so you've got to figure out how to come up with a balanced presentation that's honest about what's going on while simultaneously selling it well, while doing it in a way that everybody can understand, while doing it in a way that doesn't create shadow sides and cause people to, you know, not be able to accept their own minds and hearts and, and world. Yeah. Yeah. It's so a, the, so it's the a main real point tricky here would be a mature sort of honesty in, in, yeah. in the spiritual community. Uh, I know, hope so. From, from the outset. Uh, you know, give people as clear and as, as as realistic a picture as you can give them. Well, you know, you don't want to discourage them. You don't want them to have unrealistic uh, expectations. You just want them to sort of understand what they're going to be dealing with and to approach it, you know, in a, in a responsible way. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I think is complicated 
is trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that there will be different, you know, people at different levels of practice mm. and people at different levels of understanding. There are some people who in their life will never get beyond the fact that they like a tradition, they like its costumes, they like its aesthetics, they like its sort of basic moral message and its general sense of theory. And, and that's all they're ever going to do with it. And they, they, that's what's comfortable for them. And that's okay. And maybe it provides them some benefit that way. And then on the other far extreme, you will have advanced technical practitioners, people with deep levels of realization, mind, you know, ability to, you know, call up remarkable states of mind within themselves to do remarkable things, um, more exotic, uh, interesting things that they can figure out how to do with their um, hearts, minds, bodies, and reality and things that they can perceive. And then people in all stages in between. And the problem is, is historically, if you look at sort of, you know, the faith-based followers, um, you know, who like the costumes, the trappings, the, tr the language, the, the scene, the social support, all of which are neat things, cool, mm -hmm. good, you know. And then on the far side, you have the realist people, the mystics, the deep practitioners. Mm -hmm. They historically, and tradition after tradition, have had a profound degree of tension between them. Yeah. A lot of jealousy, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of, um, you know, people can get very freaked out by, you know, and the, and the med you know, sort of advanced meditators look at the sort of faith followers and can be sort of subtly condescending and critical of them. And, and the, the people who, who, you know, like the traditions and the techniques and, and stuff, but don't have some of the more meditative abilities and understandings, whatever, are always sort of looking at them going, yeah, yeah, those pretentious, you know, arrogant, you know, presumptuous people over there, how can they really know that stuff, yeah. you know, and are they just making it up? And so, you know, that historical tension, and it, it happens in all the traditions in Christianity, the tension between, you know, the Catholic mystics, say, and the Catholic church, you know, they were as likely to burn them at the stake as they were to canonize them or both. Yeah. You know, and, it, and in the same way, um, you know, the Sufis in Islam versus, you know, the, the traditional, you know, hierarchical aspects of the, you know, of the Islamic faith, they haven't gotten along at all in general. And you see the same thing in all the meditative traditions where the people with, you know, real understanding for some strange reason often have a hard time getting along with, communicating to, being accepted by the people who are more into the faith end of the thing. And so that's going to, I think, continue to happen as it's been such a trend for so long. I, and, and figuring out ways to work with that that are skillful is just, I think, a problem that hasn't been well addressed or articulated. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. And uh, it may be, I, I see a trend, I don't know if it's true, but that there's a shift toward the more experiential. Uh, as, I hope so. As opposed to the, the merely faith-based. And that, at least in my own attitude, um, I'm perfectly comfortable if people want to just go and sing hymns on Sunday or ch yeah. chant Hare Krishna or whatever they want to do. That's fine, great, do it. Uh, and, uh, and I don't mean that condescendingly. I think people are natu they naturally gravitate toward what is meaningful for them, and if it ceases to be meaningful at a certain point, they'll gravitate towards something else. I think, unfortunately, as you were saying, in, in hi historically, the faith-based crowd has been in the majority, and they're the types that gravitate toward administrative positions. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yep, that's so they true. end up taking over the thing and persecuting you know, the mystics and uh, right. driving them out into the desert or whatever. Um, so, but perhaps the tables are turning. You know? perhaps, perhaps the ex experientially oriented folks will become more of a majority, because that's really what it's ultimately all about. I mean, you know, Jesus and Buddha and whatnot weren't real big on faith. They were into ex experience. And, 
But, yep. and but if you don't have a means to gain that experience, then what are you left with but faith? You know, the costumes and, the, and this and that. You, you need to have a, an effective means of getting down to the real nitty-gritty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, these are perpetual opportunities and problems. So actually, my first introduction to meditation was actually in a Quaker school. Huh. So these Quaker hippies in the, you know, uh, mid-70s that, um, you know, we sat in meditation every day, 10 minutes in silent meditation before school. The whole school did together. And actually, I took a, a course taught by these Quaker hippies, you know, Christian hippies that uh, was called Close Encounters. It was my first introduction to meditation. Fourth grade is an elective, Neat. you know, in this interesting hippie school. I went to uh, Carolina Friends School um, in Durham, North Carolina long ago. It was, a, it was uh, really important, actually, I think. And so, you know, you can put meditation in schools and you can actually put meditation even in Christian context, you know, recognizing, you know, one day, you know, some of these groups will remember, you know, this be began as a meditative tradition with Jesus meditating in the desert and um, get back to some of that stuff. Who knows? It's, so there is hope. Yeah. I mean, because ultimately, you know, what, you and I both know this, but it bears repeating. What we're talking about is very much experiential and, uh, you know, just sort of having faith in in something that is really supposed to be experiential is no more gratifying in, in the end than standing out on the sidewalk, you know, believing how good the, the, the meals are in this particular restaurant, you know, while, while slowly starving to death. I mean, you really need to have the experience. And I kind of think people are drifting in that direction. They're, they're less and less dis... I mean, there's this whole theme in, in these days of people being spiritual but not religious. And, and by that, I think they mean that they are really interested in spirituality as an experiential thing. And it's not like they're opposed to religion, it's just that they're not satisfied by it. They're not satisfied by mere belief. Yep. And then the other question is, you know, some people also who, you know, totally are into the experience of the thing and, and you know, practice and clarity and mental development and, and all these things, also, uh, you know, can really miss um, the churches and the, the social gatherings and the potlucks and, yeah, the, you know, right. and the songs and the music and the beautiful beauty of the pipe organs. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, we've got to remember that, that that is also feeding some obvious human need or there wouldn't be so many churches and pipe organs and people singing and congregating together and having potlucks. Yeah. You know, and so then the question is, you know, uh, remembering that because that also nourishes a lot of people and supports a lot of people. You know, there's endless data to show that people, you know, who are, are involved in, you know, uh, church organizations have better health outcomes. They live longer. Yeah. And is that the nourishing casseroles of the of the old church ladies bringing them to their home when they're sick or whatever? I don't know, but maybe. You're probably, so. <laughs> you're probably not referring to those guys that handle the rattlesnakes. This is the other denomination. No, not so. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, luckily the number of them that die from that is pretty small. Yeah. So, Well, it's, this is an interesting point, actually, which we, we haven't quite touched upon, which is that, uh, you know, I can think of a number of examples of very um, experientially grounded, enlightened people, such as Ramakrishna or uh, Papaji, whom we mentioned earlier, or Nisargadatta, uh, who also really loved the ceremony and, and the, devo yeah. the, the, the pujas and the devotional practices. I mean, I, I have a friend who was raised Jewish named Eric Eisen. I interviewed him about a year ago, and I remember when we were, we were teaching back in Detroit in the 80s, 
And he used to love to go into, he had very deep, rich, profound experiences all the time, really off the charts. But he used to love to go into Catholic churches and, and just kind of sit and, and witness the, the ceremony and the, the stained glass windows and everything. It was, he said it would just send him into these kind of heavenly ecstatic states. So that kind of the stuff. The majesty of it is remarkable. Yeah, it can really be a, an enriching thing. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. We've got an amazing Catholic church not too far from me that looks like something you would find in the best of Spain, mm. the Spanish cathedrals there. It's just down near Coleman in Coleman, Alabama. You'd never know it was there unless you knew it was there. And it, the, the marble and the gold and the, the huge vaulted arches and the, the, it's just an amazing place. I mean, how could you not like that from a certain point of view? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe the overarching point here is you know, resist the temptation to pigeonhole anything. Uh, you know, the, uh, firstly, there's the different strokes for different folks point, but, al but also, you know, um, there's, no well, there's nothing wrong with a more complete package. Uh, yes. You know, it doesn't have to be plain vanilla non-duality and anything else right. is superfluous frills. They're well, that alienates nearly everybody. I mean, the number of people who can get into that is a, a very small number. Not yeah. that they might go very far with it. The few who can get into that mm -hmm. are probably going to go very far, but it's a very, it's, that's the way narrow end of the funnel in terms of people getting into this stuff. Yeah. So. Let me ask you a question. That, um, two weeks ago, I, I posted an interview, which you may or may not have seen, uh, in which I had a panel discussion of people who were having what we would call refined or celestial perception. And I was interested in this because the, you know, the religious iconography of every tradition and of the scriptures of every tradition talk about people having these kinds of experiences, seeing halos or auras and angels and all this stuff. And I know there's a lot of this in the Buddhist tradition, too. And I knew it would be a little bit of a controversial. So I had this panel discussion of people who, who actually have that sort of experience on a daily basis. And um, I knew it would be controversial and that it, there would be some camp who would say, you know, these people are off in la-la land, and, and even if they're having valid perceptions, it's a distraction, it's a hang-up, it's not relevant and valid on, on, on a serious spiritual path. And others were saying, thank God, I'm so glad to hear this, because I, I'm so tired of the sort of the dumbing down of spirituality where any kind of relative phenomena are, are dismissed uh, as irrelevant. So what's your take on all that? Well, so I didn't see the interview. So help tell me a little bit more about what they were uh, perceiving and uh, what it was doing for them, how, how it changed or positively impacted their life. Well, for some of them, it was relatively new. And for some of them, it's been going on for decades. And, um, you know, one woman has, you know, she all kinds of stuff about seeing light coming out of people and she can tell if a person is lying because sparks come flying out of their heads and she has she can you know see people's past lives whether or not she wants to a lot of times but you know and uh, I'll just summarize real quickly and another guy had a spiritual awakening quite profoundly after 30 years of being a, a Trappist and Benedictine monk and you know was grounded in pure consciousness 24 7 we might we might say uh, but after a little while began to see subtle beings you know angels attending to people and doing doing things on a regular all the time basically and yeah. he doesn't know quite to, what to make of it but it's very kind of and he's not distracted or in fact he didn't really want to talk about it I kind of twisted his arm because he felt like it was too private and intimate another guy um, had has been having this for decades and uh, really kind of deep, profound, extraordinary uh, cognitions on a, on a daily basis. Uh, I mean, one time I was taking a walk with him, 
And I said, well, what is your experience? And he said, well, I see millions of souls coming in and out of my body. I see the devas and, or the laws of nature that are governing the various levels of creation. I see them functioning and so on. I said, you mean in meditation? He said, no, right now. And this guy's a practical guy. He's a businessman and family man, has a couple of kids. And yeah. then, then there are a couple more. So anyway, people are having this kind of experience, sometimes quite by surprise. Uh, and usually not culturing it intentionally, but they're having these kinds of experiences. This is out there. It's part of the scene. And uh, so well, from your actually, experience, all that is, what would you say to it? Well, actually, so starting off just with the theory and tradition, that's all stock standard textual stuff. You know, um, if you read the old Pali canon, there's endless people seeing beings and ghosts and dewas mm -hmm. and all kinds of realms. And that's actually so totally part of the thing i you know have the book on my desk uh the 31, 31 planes, planes of existence cool you know it talks about seeing all these different realms and uh -huh. and beings and these things and so i've had some experiences of uh different realms um and seeing different uh things like that and so the the, the question for what i call the powers you know sort of just if we broadly lump them all in the category of powers is you know so a th there's no question that these things happen to people and then the best way they perceive the reality and some, you know, mo for most people, these things are transient. So most people will have, you know, temporary glimpses of very altered ways of perceiving reality. So I remember I was on this retreat, um, the retreat uh, right before I got stream entry, as I, as you know, would be one, the you know, first stage of awakening in a Buddhist map point of view for those not familiar with the, the dogma. But right before I got that, I was walking around the Thai monastery in India in this interesting state where I was seeing everybody simultaneously as Buddhas, fully awakened beings, and mush demons. So that's a, sort of a funny way to explain it. There were these sort of sad, squat creatures with sort of big eyes, very cartoon-looking, and sort of arms and kind of fur coming off. Look like some sort of strange, sort of, you know, unfortunate Muppet or something. You know, but th these sort of sad, limited, scared creatures, and yet fully awakened beings at the same time. And that was my experience. As I was, and I, it was true of the, the chickens and the puppies and all these little, and the birds up on the wires. I was seeing them all in this same context, simultaneously, the sort of the luminous dance of God and as sort of small, scared individual creatures all at the same time. You know, so I, I've definitely had some of these experiences, though I don't walk around perceiving reality that way all the time. But this is stock standard stuff. That's, you know, sort of ordinary things to happen. So, you know, I, I've talked to plenty of monks and other meditators who've had lots of experiences like this, you know, who've seen angels or celestial beings or devils or demons or other um, divine presences or uh, other stuff. And so, so, but you, you raise the point of saying this guy was a, you know, these people were family people who have jobs and relationships and lives and they're functioning just fine. Yeah. Yeah. So, functioning so better. Yeah. Functioning better. So, right. And so, it's funny, I wish I could, um, I should have uh, had you read the, the second draft of the book because I was just writing it actually just last night mm. and um, a few recent nights the, in the powers section. So, you know, you have people who they listen to the garden gnomes and the garden gnomes tell them how to grow vegetables and the vegetables they grow are totally amazing. Yeah. What's the problem? So in terms of, you know, that sounds great. I, I prefer better vegetables with the instructions of the garden gnomes to the smaller ones <laughs> that weren't as good. You know, I mean, so if it's enhancing function, me being a pragmatist at heart, I care about function. You see what I mean? Yeah. And, and so, you know, if this is enhancing people's lives in some way or is providing benefit, great, cool. And, and so I like Freud's definition. You know, Freud talked about mental illness as that which interferes with love and work, mm. basically, was his 
course, conceptualization obviously is more complicated than that. But And so if it's not interfering with love, our ability to connect with people and have relationships or work, our ability to function and maintain our lives and eat and feed our families or do whatever we need to do as our work, or if it's enhancing that, then cool. Yeah. You see what I mean? I, I don't see... A, I don't see a problem, and it sounds like it could be very enhancing. I got a lot out of actually my periods walking around where I was what you might think of as psychotic, but actually it was really enhancing function. There was no obvious downside, you know, and it really enhanced my ability to appreciate what was going on in the world around me. So, and I think it's worth discussing it because, like some of the other things we've been talking about, it is something which people experience sometimes quite by surprise, you know, like we were talking about the high school curriculum, maybe you're going to have to say, well, you might start seeing angels. <laughs> some, yeah. If there's some preparation or some understanding that this is part of the trip, then it won't scare people and they'll take it in stride. And, and perhaps just as importantly, they won't blow it out of proportion and think that it's uber right. important, you know, and, and or, or try to develop it specifically with, you know, whereas it really perhaps should be a side effect or a symptom of a certain stage of development. Well, I mean, actually developing those things specifically sometimes is, is really cool. So take the Tibetan Tantra people huh? who spend their, you know, who spend hours and hours and thousands of hours visualizing deities. Mm. You know, so, you know, these, you know, Vajrasattvas and, you know, um, you know, thousand arm Chegn Rezigs and, you know, all these, you know, they, they have a whole specific canon of things they learn to visualize and not only to then see the deities, but then to actually become the deities and walk around embodying themselves as the deity and actually seeing themselves as the deity, you know, and then merging with the deity. So that's actually explicit tantric practice. So sometimes that's the path, that's you know, and yeah. I, I know a lot of those people who have gotten a lot out of doing that and I've actually spent some time visualizing deities and and doing some of those things and and found it totally fascinating and if you you know get your visualization skills good enough these things actually become these remarkable transparent luminous intelligent entities that then seem to be totally intelligent and totally interactive and then you can recognize that your nature is the same as their nature and actually have these remarkable experiences where they, you know you collapse into the awareness and cognition of them and they merge and all these profoundly transforming things and so, you know, some of those practices can be uh, absolutely skillful and fascinating and actually, I mean, you know, cultivating the powers. So, you know, the powers are one of these topics that a lot of people don't like to talk about. Yeah. But there you can get a lot of remarkable things to happen to your consciousness by cultivating the powers. It's also a possible trip, you know, quick trip to destabilizing psychosis as you learn in the TM world. Because anytime you're doing a, a, a visualization or a mantra or even more, the two together, that's pretty much how you get into that territory, you know, seeing stuff and hearing stuff, you know, and so, and that can, as you know, from, you know, I'm sure your TM work, that can be very transformative or also sometimes cause people to flip out, yeah. which is why the tantric path has been called fast and dangerous. I, I see why. Now. Yeah. <laughs> and what I infer from that is that these deities you refer to as this, in, in this case in point, are not just uh, hallucinations or figments of imagination. One is actually learning to kind of tune into a particular level of creation where such things actually intrinsically exist. So you're just becoming more adept at exploring the territory. I'm actually very cautious about that point of view. Uh -huh. If you go assuming an absolute ontology, meaning this is the structure of reality, and I know this to be the, some sort of ultimate structure of reality from a relative point of view that these things actually exist. Mm -hmm. That language makes me sort of nervous. What a does that bit. book say that you just held up? The 31 levels of creation. 
Is it yes. So it talks about these... levels, or is it saying that there's actually these strata, mm. which which are part of the way creation actually is, is structured? How about we actually assume that there are multiple other points of view than that standard stock scientific materialistic dichotomy? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so imagine that there are other points of view of looking at that. From my point of view as a pragmatist, these experiences, if they happen and you say, oh, that is definitely real. I saw an angel and I'm sure that angel is the truth and that angel exists and that angel is definitely an angel. Mm. That can be very compelling when you've just seen an angel and it seemed to be true. Although Does that, that make that, sense? Yeah, but that degree of certainty but, sounds a little bit um, rigid right. or too, right. too adamant. It's too adamant. And I think somewhere in there you have to maintain some skepticism. It's not quite the right word, but an empiricism or how do I know? It's not even the right word. A bit of a grain of salt. Just keep a Something, a bit of a grain of salt. You have to be careful whenever you're having these experiences yeah. to, to not take them so seriously. Because it can run people into trouble, particularly if the angels tell you crazy stuff. Yeah, which sometimes right. these things are going to do, right? Sometimes they're going to tell you crazy they stuff. They may not and, be angels. <laughs> right. It may, who knows? Whatever. But just, right. you know, or something. So I think from a pragmatic point of view and from an experientialist point of view, those are the two ways I frame this. Mm -hmm. uh, in that these experiences definitely occur. You know, you can have these experiences. That's what you experienced. That was your reality. And then there's the interpretation of that which is also going to be part of your experience and arise dependent on conditions. And you have to recognize that these things are causal. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So even if you were a pure scientific materialist who said, oh, these are just hallucinations, these are just your imagining internal experiences, well, they're missing something because these effects are causal. They determine what's happening in what everybody considers ordinary materialistic reality. So to dismiss them as not being a part of reality, which would, when they're actually causally impacting reality is obviously very paradigmatically problematic. Does that make sense? Yep, some nice multisyllabic words there. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> so, so if they're impacting reality, there's some aspect of experiential reality and causal reality. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to recognize that from a pragmatic point of view. Yeah. And then the question is, from a pragmatist point of view, what good comes from these experiences and how do you make the most of them? And from a paradigmatic fluency point of view, how do you interpret them to get the best outcomes from them? Does that make sense? Uh -huh. So those are the things I find the most interesting. And from my point of view, the real gold standard from a power's point of view is how skillfully do we relate to them and how do they benefit our lives? You see what I mean? Yeah. If these people are experiencing angels and it makes their lives better and they become more functional and it gives them insight and it helps them navigate in reality and life is better for it, cool. And if those angels are telling them to suicide bomb people and do other things like that, uh, yeah. I hope they have the wisdom to recognize that that is an experience and that they have mature, fluent ability to interpret and relate to that experience from a point of view of kindness and wisdom. Does I that make sense? Yeah, sure. I can also imagine a scenario in which people open up to this sort of realm of subtle phenomena. And it's a bit overwhelming at first, just as yes. other types of awakenings might be overwhelming right. at first. And it, initially, it doesn't enhance your life because you become right. somewhat dysfunctional by, it, by virtue of it. But over time, it gets integrated and stabilized and you get it under your belt. And then actually things are, have been vastly enhanced and, and yes. you're, you're kind of on a new level of functioning. Right. Yeah. Definitely. So, and recognize that anytime you enter into new territory and new experiences and new wiring, there's likely going to be some instability. There's usually an awkward period, yeah. as you might call it. Yeah. There was a whole section, a yep. um, number of sections in your book where you talk about um, 
your personal attainments or realizations, and um, you know, you, and a lot of the terminology is unfamiliar to me. Even stream entry, I don't particularly understand. And then you, you talk about arising and passing away, and then there's stream entry, and uh, da 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 da, um, all kinds of things here. Third path, and and Naroda Samapati, and all these developments. Can can you? Would it be useful to for you to sketch out some of these stages of development in general and with respect to your own experience? Or is it a wow. too big a how topic? Wow! How much time? Or? How much time do you have? It's a huge topic. Maybe if you had some of them, we could try to narrow it down. But these are stock standard, you know, models of so, development so and awakening. Let's give us the Reader's not... Digest version. So what's what's stream entry, for instance? What's stream entry? My problem is, as a technical practitioner, it's hard to. Well, anyway, I'll do my best okay. to readers digest it. Okay, so stream entry would be the first stage of awakening from a Theravadan Buddhist point of view. I would associate it with the first bumi of the Theravadan, sorry, of the Tibetan path, uh, multiple bumi model, or there What's a bumi? would be a bumi would be a level or a ground. So a standard Tibetan map uh, means something like ground or level. Uh, stream entry would be um, first taste of some sort of really clear understanding of reality, as well as first taste of what a, a we would call fruition, mm -hmm. which is where reality vanishes and reappears. So the few moments before stream entry are a brief sort of three or four burst taste of incredibly clear cognition. Mm -hmm. The field cognizes itself totally, shudders in some way, vanishes, and then reappears. And then when that happens, um, the mind is sort of reset in some way, and channels of perception that one had been developing are suddenly sort of locked in. So that sort of then um, causes a number of sort of specific technical transformations. <laughs> Guys, it's, it's so hard in a short period of yeah. time. Well, um, maybe I shouldn't have put you on the spot. But... That's all right, but, but first taste of awakening. So, okay. so it's the first taste of real, what they would call awakening. And so what it does is allows a person to um, relate to the stages of meditation differently, to be able to call them more easily, to navigate them more easily, to, in many people, to be able to reattain to that very clear way of being that causes reality to synchronize, vanish, and reappear, called fruition. Um, Is it a permanent uh, uh, shift? or Yeah, not, so not it's a permanent shift. It's okay. a permanent shift. It's what we would call the first of the really permanent uh, shifts from a Theravadan mapping point of view. Mm -hmm. So the stages that lead up to it are the arising and passing away, which is the Kundalini awakenings, the explosions of consciousness, the rapturous visions, the the energetic stuff, the spontaneous movements, the yeah. you know the the bright lights, the the visions, sometimes powers opening. So all that stuff is the arising and passing away, which usually people is to think of the first stage of awakening if they're not model people because it's so totally impressive, yeah. <laughs> which is usually followed by the dark night sort of dissolution, those openings start to sort of restructure, sort of alter the sense, sort of, uh, you might even say violate the sense of identity of continuous stuff and can cause some real instability as sort of the operating system kind of tries to figure out how to navigate in a world that's less like it thought it was. Then you come to equanimity, which is sort of a balanced, okay, now I'm fine with those things I've seen, and you start to integrate them into the full field of understanding. And when the whole field gets it for the first time and sees itself as it is, poof, reality vanishes, synchronizes, reappears. Stream entry. Uh, yeah, I could go on and on about that. That's but okay. anyway, well, so that's... Yeah, portion out your time to give us some more, yeah. a taste of some of the more other significant stages. Sure. So that is very transformative, but in terms of how it transforms people walking, people's walking around experience, it varies between people, but often is not very complete. So it's sort of like a first taste. It's kind of like getting into college, you know? 
okay, yes, you're in college, cool, but you're now a freshman in college, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Usually lots to go, lots to see. That understanding now, but it's called stream entry because now you're in the stream of the thing. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot more spontaneous dharma happening, and obviously so. Cycles, shifts, perceptual changes. Now you're in the, the throes of the thing. You're, you're in it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. St stuff's now going to be doing you kind of more than it obviously was before. I mean, it was always sort of doing you from a certain point of view, but, but now it's sort of... You've gotten out of the way to a great extent. And, right. And now, now stuff's going to be happening. Yeah. The first real switch has been thrown, mm -hmm. and now some machine of deconstructing the sense of permanent continuous identity is now woken up and, and working yeah. to go through layers of mind, layers of delusion, layers of stuff to begin to wake those things up mm -hmm. from a sort of map theory point of view. Okay, next term you were interested in. What is the next one? Uh, so the next would be second path. Mm -hmm. And here we get into model divergence. So the, the standard models talk about, okay, now we've got to talk about the Theravadan maps, which is a problem. So the Theravadan maps, very briefly, involve what's called the 10 fetter model. And in the 10 fetter model, you've got the 10 fetters. And it would say that each of these is eliminated or attenuated at each path. And which a is one of these like handcuffs. It's something which binds you. Kind of, yeah. yeah. So, but the specific 10 fetters are, I'm going to give you the stack Theravadan dogma and then try to make some sense of it. So at stream entry would say to be eliminate personality belief, the sense, the fact that there is some continuous personality as a belief. Not that one is, has experienced the total dissolution of that by any means, but the, the basic belief that there is such a thing. They would say that it eliminates skeptical doubt. You now know that these techniques and these practices and these things can lead to real transformation. So it also, in theory, eliminates the belief in rites and rituals, that, that rites and rituals alone would be necessarily enough to be transformative, but instead would, in theory, write in people who have attained stream entry that one needs more direct, clear understanding rather than just sort of the faith-based stuff. So anyway, not that every stream enterer will necessarily automatically describe their experience that way. So we get into all kinds of problems. But here's the, I'm giving you the dogma. So that's the dogma. So then they would say at second path, that would attenuate greed and hatred is sort of the standard dogma and also means you've completed a whole other insight cycle at a deeper level of mind so through can, a new arising and passing away. You can be a stream enderer but still be greedy and, and hateful. Actually, you can actually be all kinds of realized and still, still sort of be those things from a functional <laughs> point of view. <laughs> right. Um, did I say that? Yeah, you did. Yeah. Okay. So it's not going to be popular, but um, yeah, I said that. So that's the dogma. I'm giving you the dogma yeah. and then you've got the reality. So the, the problem is that the Theravadan maps and models at once have models that talk about just the bare clear comprehension of what they would call the three characteristics of reality. Um, it's impermanence, it's selfless nature, meaning it's too impermanent, too transient, too non-dual, too whatever, too, to constitute a true self, a separate, permanent, continuous, observing, controlling entity. All, all processes arise on their own, they're causal, and so there is not actually the free will that we generally think there is. There's not this separate observer somewhere in our heads watching everything and controlling everything, little man working the controls of the brain that we think there are. Those are all just natural causal processes that are part of this luminous natural field of manifestation, transient, um, aware where it is, um, intrinsically conscious or just manifest or whatever you want to say. So anyway, so it's got those models of just bare perception and clarity, bare perceptual clarity, or which I consider, you know, sort of that's really the awakening stuff I find interesting. And then it unfortunately adds on to those things about emotions and emotional perfection and other stuff, which I consider naive. So I don't like all of the Theravadan models and have attempt to reform and revise them for those who are traditionalists and not liking my attempts at that. I'm sorry. But anyway, 
So then second path would, in theory, according to the 10 Fetter model, eliminate, uh, or sorry, attenuate uh, um, greed and hatred to some degree. Um, and from an experiential point of view, sort of does some more damage to the sense of a continuous center point somewhere. Um, and one will have completed another whole cycle of arising and passing away, dark night, equanimity, to get to that. So then third path, um, which would be called anagami or whatever, then would, in from a um, Theravadan point of view, would eliminate greed and hatred <laughs> in their ordinary forms, except atta- attachment to the formless realms, to formed jhanas, those are deep, rich, you know, meditative, blissful experiences or, you know, boundless experiences or whatever. But from my point of view, what that does is radically transform the experience of the phenomenal world such that it radically decentralizes consciousness and perception such that in the glass, the manifestation and the consciousness are the same thing to a very, very, very large degree. The glass um, is sort of seen in terms of consciousness, in terms of the self or... Whatever. No, it is the thing. So the experiences are where they are. We usually think of reality as being, this is the thing that's looking out at all those things. And when this looks out at them, this experience is that there. Uh-huh. You see what I mean? As opposed to the that there bearing the experience. So third path, from my point of view, really does some major walking around damage to the notion that there is the central controller, doer, observer, perceiver. And, and attenuates that to a profound degree, leaving stuff that is pretty subtle from that point of view. So now the field is much more the field. The field is more awake. The field is more directly representing itself in a much more boundaryless way. The, the body, the mind, the speech are all much more clearly just seen to be happening as things that are happening as a natural part of causal unfolding reality. In that, we get much more of a sense of just this, the field is the field. The, the experience is the experience. And that's, there's something really nice about that. Um, except that in third path, there is still some subtle something that's not quite perceived in that same clear light of just um, direct seeing or direct knowledge or clear comprehension from a walking around point of view. And then our hot trip from my point of view would be the last and final elimination of that as a walking around experience or option or possibility of the way reality perceives itself. Cool. And you've pretty much gone through all these stages. Mm-hmm. And then what do you see uh, on the horizon? I mean, how many more such stages are there to go through? Are they endless or is there some kind of like final hmm. resting point? That's a great question. So in terms of axes of development, um, I actually consider that to be basically the only axis that has an obvious endpoint. And then there's all the rest of the axes, which I don't see obvious endpoints to. How kind can you be? I don't see an obvious endpoint to that. How well can you speak? How well can you interact with people? How well can you understand human interaction? How well and skillfully can you try to help the world? How well and skillfully can you understand the depths of psychology? Um, How well and skillfully can you do anything? How deeply can you master the stages of concentration? So the jhanas, the deep samadhi states... I don't see any obvious endpoints to all of those things. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I see, you know, an amazing amount of capacity for development on all of the other axes of development. But strangely enough, on that single axis of clear perception and dissolving a sense of a, a center point of a doer of a controller, I actually see an endpoint. Hmm. Once the final thing flips over, once the knot unties, that seems to be it. That happened to me about uh, 11 years ago. It's one of the remarkable things is that it stayed consistent, yeah. meaning I, I don't see 
you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic and I've misjudged my practice so many times that I continue to go, wow, really? <laughs> really, Daniel, are you totally high? <laughs> no, like, <laughs> so my best um, skeptical inquiry into the nature of the thing doesn't find any last little things. You know, and if they're there, I'm totally deluded about them, you know, which is another option. You've got to keep that one in mind. I might be just totally full of shit, you know, excuse my mic. <laughs> you know, so, but um, if it is, it's in a dilute, it's a level of delusion I haven't managed to crack. So mm. I'll, I'll leave that skillful door open, if that makes sense from a yeah. reasonable skepticism point of view. Yeah, but that you could do that and that you could have it hold up and last. What's interesting is there's something Stable is the wrong word, but when you stop habitually turning some something into a constant thing that's trying to figure out its vantage point, mm -hmm. there's something stable about that from a weird point of view, and that something has stopped because it's a process to constantly try to manage, imagine the vantage point from which something is separate. Do you yeah. see what I mean? Uh -huh. You know, it, it seems to be here, and it seems to be the back of our head, and then it's our nose, and then it's our eyes, and then it's here. You know, before, if I like you know, would look at the back of my head, it would seem like the eyes sort of tried to turn backwards and, and the back of the head would sort of be perceived from some vantage point. Whereas sometimes it seemed like the back of the head was sort of looking out that way, you know, so it kind of moved all around. And there's something you have to do in this weird kind of distorting way and sort of ignoring the, the true nature of phenomenal way to maintain that. You see what I mean? It's actually an active process of selective delusion and moving redefinition of yourself. That has to happen all the time. You can actually stop that process. Huh. And yeah. now the field is just the field. And there's something really amazingly better about that, really amazingly clearer about that, where everything just is where it is. So the back of the head is now just where the back of the head is, and the eyes are just where the eyes are. But nothing seems to be observing, controlling, or redefining to try to figure out how it's looking at everything, you know, and what its relationship to everything is. Now the things are just where they are. And, and I must say that beats the heck out of the previous way of being. Yeah. So what you said a minute ago was, it raises kind of an interesting question, which is that uh, I guess you can be full of shit and think you're enlightened, but can you, oh, yeah. can you, be, <laughs> can you be enlightened and, and still think that maybe you're full of shit? And, and in fact, is that attitude actually uh, a healthy sign of genuine enlightenment? <laughs> God, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> or or would, a, you know, would, would a genuinely enlightened person be kind of like convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that he's got it and he's, he's not you know, full of it? <laughs> well, it's a very, very slippery proposition, isn't it? Yeah. So the, the interesting thing is that the experience of the question of whether or not I'm full of shit has that wonderful non-dual perception to it, which is very reassuring. Good. So even if I'm totally full of crap, I can definitely tell you that I prefer this way of being to the previous way. Do you see what I mean? I do. And just, just to sort of summarize and reiterate... <laughs> I would not go back. Just to summarize and reiterate what you've been saying the last few minutes... Um, as I understand it, you're saying that you have sort of reached a, we could say, an absolute or a, uh, a clarity with regard to the absolute dimension of life, which really can't be get any more absolute, or by def, you know, because absolute by definition is absolute, can't be like more shiny or something. But, right. but on the other hand, in terms of the relative <laughs> dimension of your life, there is, and anyone's life, there is no end to the possibilities of refinement and insight and clarification and skill and all the, all the rest. That, that's my current take on it, yeah. for better or for worse. Good. So. Well, I think people are dying in Huntsville, and you probably need to get to the hospital pretty, pretty soon. So let me, let me just, I guess, make some wrap-up points, and I think you have to be there in half an hour or so, don't you? I've, actually, I should, um, I've got maybe 15 minutes, so. Okay. 
So but I don't um, know what your time's like. So you know, cut it off anytime you need to. Yeah, lunch is probably pretty ready, ready pretty soon. But um, okay, so we can take a few more minutes. Is uh, you know, I have a, your whole table of contents printed out here, and I'm sure there's a, every single point on the table of contents could get us into a half an hour of discussion. Uh, I would love to sometime <laughs> if you ever want to. <laughs> That'd be fun. Is there anything else that comes to mind that you feel is important that you know on your way to work this afternoon you're going to think, God, I wish we'd talked about that. Well, I think just the basic point of having a lot of fun engaging with these things mm -hmm. is really important. Like this stuff is fascinating. Yeah, me this too. stuff is totally fascinating. Like exploring your mind and exploring what these ancient and interesting techniques do, and learning to figure out all the unbelievably cool things you can do with your mind is just so much fun. You know what I mean? And I hope people get, that's the attitude I would hope to convey the most. That this stuff is, it's the most remarkable adventure. It's like the coolest video game ever. It, learning to unlock the Easter egg functionality, meaning which is a video gamer's turner, you know, for like, you know, when you hop up and down on the mushroom three times, then grab the gold coin, you know, and, and then hit this button on your control thing, all of a sudden this cool door opens, you know, that you never knew was there. That same kind of thing is true of the human mind. There is just amazing functionality, amazing states and experiences that we can get into, amazing insights that we can have, amazing things that we can explore from the energetic point of view to the magical point of view, as you discussed, to the insight point of view, to seeing the true nature of phenomena, to opening our hearts, to dealing with our emotions, to um, experiencing great archetypal energies or whatever it is. Like, it is just so totally amazing to explore this stuff as long as you recognize that if you have good people to help support you through the more complicated, awkward phases, to put it nicely, of this stuff, you'll do a lot better. And I think keeping an open mind and really trying to be honest about what our experiences are and how they line up with the maps and how they don't and trying to avoid the shadow sides of practice, those are the things I care about. You know, realizing that we will all fall down, we will all make mistakes, we will all delude ourselves, um, we will all uh, recognize, oh, nope, actually, nope, definitely more to understand on that point. I'm totally full of it. And keeping that level of humility, realizing that some of these experiences are so compelling that it's nearly impossible not to, you know, attribute to them some, you know, unbelievably ultimate final status, if that makes sense, you know, because that's just what the brain chemistry does. Like it just released such a massive amount of dopamine or whatever in our brains. Like, oh my God, that is it, dude, no, whoa. You know, and realizing that's just normal and being forgiving to ourselves if we later revise that and being forgiving to our colleagues if they later revise their opinions and recognizing that that's just normal in this business and, and having a good time and, and talking to people about this and, and making it sort of a collective fun social adventure is I think the attitude that works the best um, rather than some, you know, all the other attitudes I see out there. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's a great riff. Uh, you, <laughs> so, you know, Thoreau said most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you get the sense that for millions of people, billions of people in the world, life is a pretty drab and miserable affair, you know, with just, it's because it's a struggle, it's suffering, it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's boring, it's, you know, Otherwise, why would people commit suicide and so on? And, yeah. uh, and the uh, reality of the situation you just described beautifully is that, the, you know, I think there's a, jo a song by John Mayer called Your Body is a Wonderland, but I think we could, yeah. say, we could say that of the entire universe and, and our, the mind is a wonderland. And there's such an unlimited realm of possibilities to explore and experience that you know, life need not be drab for anyone, really. Right, the richness, and we forget the freshness. There's something in the glory of just the sensate contact 
that when we really tune into it is has something remarkably interesting in it. You know, and we get so lost in our minds and our goals and our ambitions and our fears and our neurosis and our stuff that just the simple fact, I don't mean to be like, you know, oh my God, like my fingers, like some, you know, some <laughs> tripping person, but there is something of that. You know what I mean? Like, there is. you know, when the tripping people are going, oh my God, my fingers, well, actually bringing something of that spirit back into this yeah. has real value yeah. because we can learn to remember that way of being by just tuning into that way of being. And it helps ground us in our bodies and our sensate worlds. And it helps get us out of our fears and our, our you know, not that we, it isn't, sometimes important to go into our fears, but to see them as the fears as rich and interesting experiences too, as part of this field of experience. Uh -huh. And that helps to give us a broader, more clear, more immediate perspective on them to see all the emotions as colors of space, as textures of space, as rich and intricate experiences in this body mind, as part of this whole field of the room that we're in or the sky that we're mm. and the planet that we're a part of, seeing them as living integrated experiences in, these, in this field now and embracing them and being clear about them really helps. Yeah. That's another point of view. I wanted to make sure I got in there somewhere. No, that's a good one. And uh, hopefully I have time. Let's give it, I guess we have about five minutes. Yeah, I got a little time. What you just said about fingers reminded me of something, which is that I've understood that Buddhism really doesn't talk about God, that it considers God to sort of be a moot point, that, you know, not, not sort of something that is open to like exploration. But when I think of like fingers, I think, you know, take the tip of my finger. It has more atoms in it than there are stars in the known universe. And on every level, anatomical, molecular, you know, cellular, molecular, atomic, subatomic, there's such an incredible thing going on here. And such an, an amazing in, intelligence governing the functioning at every level. And of course, this is, we're not just talking about the finger, we're talking about the entire universe and every iota of it, every square centimeter being governed uh, on gross and subtle levels by some unfathomable intelligence, that to me is God. And so it would seem to me that Buddhists would eventually kind of encounter that level of experience and believe in God, not as the old bearded guy in the sky, but as an all-pervading intelligence that contains us and that you know, we contain, that we're part and parcel of. Well, there is actually apparently one line in the Pali canon somewhere that does actually mention that sort of divine perspective. So told me, Christopher Titmus uh, told me that I haven't bothered to track it down and look it up, but he was a monk for a long time, maybe he knows that. Buddhism does talk about gods. So it talks about Brahman and, you know, various gods, considering them, so, them relative creatures. And Buddhism has a very uneasy relationship to what you might think of as true self. And the dogmatists here are going to be thick and fast on both sides. So this is like, this is navigating a political minefield of the people who, on one extreme, you have the people, oh my God, Atman Buddhism, true self Buddhism, it's a curse, it's a plague, it's the worst thing that ever happened to Buddhism, it's a total corruption, and it's a like, you know, oh my God, it's going to bring down the planet, you know, okay, you've got, the, you've got those extremists. And then you've got the, the other extremists within Buddhism, you know, the Buddha nature ground of being people who posit something incredibly stable, incredibly permanent, incredibly something, which in experience you actually cannot find anything permanent from a very technical Buddhist point of view. So you, you have these, these two extremes, both of which I find pretty annoying. Yeah, extremists are always annoying. <laughs> um, and um, not that they aren't making their interesting points in an attempt to counterbalance each other. And then from an experiential point of view, the whole field seems to be happening on its own in a luminous way. 
the intelligence or awareness seems to be intrinsic in the phenomena. The ph phenomena do appear to be totally transient, totally ephemeral. So I reject from an experiential point of view something in the, in the harshness of the dogma of the, of the rigid no-selfists that can't recognize the intrinsic nature of awareness that is the field. It's because they tend to feel so, there's something about that sort of awareness, cut off. awareness has a and sort intelligence. of... And intelligence. Yeah, intelligence. That's I want to make sure that right. word comes in. Because awareness so, right. seems kind of flat and plain vanilla, but intelligence, you know. Right. And then I also reject, uh, from an experiential point of view, the people who would make this into something permanent, mm -hmm. something separate from, something different from just the manifestation itself. Because there tends to be both... I don't like the permanence aspects because from a Buddhist technical point of view, I do not find anything that stands up as permanent in experience. I find that quality always there while there is experience mm -hmm. because it's something in the nature of experience, but it's not quite the same thing as permanent, yeah. if that makes sense. So while there yeah. is experience, there's experience. So that means there is awareness from a certain point of view, manifestation, awareness being intrinsically the same thing, intrinsic to each other. So while there is experience, I would claim that element is there. It has to be for there to be experience. And I will claim the, the system seems to function very lawfully. It's easy to feel that as sort of an intelligence. Mm. Okay, cool. When you think about I, what's I, actually I, I, going I, on, I mean, you know, you're a doctor. You, you cut people open all the time, I suppose, or sew them, <laughs> sew them up or something. But you know, when you think about the miracle of what's actually going on, in our, just in taking our bodies as a case in point, but those flowers behind me or anything else, there, there's, and you look closely enough, if you actually pay attention um, microscopically or whatever, there's something miraculous in every iota of creation, and that's permanent. Yes. Our experience of it may not be permanent, that we may zoom in and out of that, but what's actually happening, to which we are generally oblivious, is a miracle. Uh, or, uh, I mean, not a miracle in the sense of something uh, supernatural, but in terms of something vastly more profound. And, and the feeling of profundity, yeah, profound. the feeling of miraculousness, right. the wondrous component. So as the Tibetans would say, amazing, it all happens by itself. You know, so, or as the so, Nouveau Tibetans would say, awesome, dude. <laughs> dude. So, yeah, I mean, so <laughs> that's funny. There is something intrinsically amazing about this. Yes, it's, it's very refreshingly amazing that the thing happens and that, that, that things cognize themselves or, or aware where they are or manifest. Manifestation is truly amazing and tuning into that amazingness has something really valuable about it what a trip. from a pragmatic point of view. Yes, so true. Great. Well, let's end on that note. So this has been really stimulating. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Me too. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate the yeah. opportunity. It really gets me firing on all cylinders to have a conversation like this. We'll do it again someday. Let me make some general wrap-up points here. So I've been talking with Daniel Ingram. And uh, Daniel, as, you, as we've been saying, is an emergency room physician, but uh, he's also an ardent and dedicated and experienced Buddhist practitioner and author. Um, he has written a book entitled Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book. And I'll be linking to that book on his page on batgap.com and linking to his Dharma Overground website, which uh, is a place where you can participate in, in lively discussions. Um, we will hope the Batgap bump doesn't overwhelm the server. Yes, you might need to upgrade. <laughs> I actually just did upgrade it. We'll hope it's enough. Yeah. Batgap overwhelmed its own server. They kicked me off at, at one point, and I had to go to a dedicated server. Um, oh, no. 
but uh, they kicked me off without warning. The whole site was down for three days. Oh, no. So a few general points before I conclude. Uh, this interview has been part of an ongoing series. There have been about 230 of them previously now, and you can find them all on batgap.com. They're indexed in various ways, alphabetically in the right-hand column. There's a past interviews menu where you can find them indexed uh, chronologically and also uh, topically. And we're continuing to refine and, and develop that. Um, there is a donate button, which I rely upon people clicking if they feel inclined. Uh, there's a place to, be, to sign up to be notified by email every time a new interview is posted. There is a forum, a discussion forum, that um, has a section dedicated to each interview, so you'll see a link to that on Daniel's page. There is a link to an audio podcast, because you can listen to this on iTunes and you know, in a, some kind of podcast reader and not have to sit in front of your computer for two and a half, three hours. <laughs> so all those things and probably more, just explore the menus. Thanks for listening or watching. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's been great fun. And uh, we'll see you all next week with a, a pretty far out interview next week. It's Daryl Anka who channels somebody called Bashar. And there, oh. there were a lot of uh, requests that I interview him. So it's going to be a bit of a wild ride. And uh, stay tuned for that. Have fun. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye.